Welcome back to We Want More, the Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality Analysis podcast after a week, uh, I was going to say hiatus or vacation, but it was neither of those, a week off. Hi, Brad, you miss me? We did. It was, uh, yeah, I, whatever you call a vacation where someone's too sick to do their jobs, so. Apparently it's not COVID that I had, just the, oh my God, you're really fucking sick and feel awful. Yeah, I, I'm i with you. It, it like... You had textbook COVID. And so it actually prompted me to spend like half an hour looking for like, all right, what are the false negative rates? And it was surprisingly hard to find any actual numbers. Um, everything I found was talking about like the possibility of false negatives and, you know, what estimates. But the closest thing I found was in like May. And it was something like even at the best time to check, which was right when you got checked, you know, like day five to eight, you know, middle of symptoms, all the nose stuff. It was still like 21% false negatives. Um Oh, yeah, I get, yeah, I'm mostly like going with like it was because uh, it's not just like, oh, my God, I was super sick. It was both that, like, oh, I was really sick and the, like the symptoms were so weirdly specific and unusual. But yeah, so I think, but yeah, I guess that kind of sucks, though, because not having a test, I still have to act like I'm a person that could still get it. <laughs> right. And that's, you know, maybe it's worth your time at some point to go get an antibody test anyway. I uh, think those that where I can where they can say, like, yes, you had it. Oh, yeah, they've had that since uh, May, at least. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. 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 I was really saying it, it's like been, a, it's a solid description from what I heard. It's just like, oh, it's a really, really, really bad cold. Whereas like, oh, it's, I am like really sick and I feel awful and I haven't been this sick in a long time. And I could see how if I was like old or immune compromised that this would be life threatening. So I was never worried about it, but you're like, oh, this sucks bad. Yeah. Oh, before we dive into the episode, um, I wanted to mention that uh, another awesome badass wizard died. Uh, since our last recording, um, James Randi died on October 12th. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's been, that was a while ago. We haven't recorded in a while. Yeah, I think it was just a couple days after our last recording. But uh, yeah, I mean, he was a giant. If anyone doesn't know who he is, I imagine much of our audience does just because of the nature of our group. But um, he he was the guy you probably may, you may have heard of the million dollar paranormal challenge yeah, where did. anyone who could demonstrate any paranormal supernatural occult abilities under controlled test conditions gets a million dollars. They had tons of entries and no, no claimant, no winners. Um, but I mean, even then before all that, he was like, he, he got guff back in the day. He wouldn't perform for racially segregated crowds in the South. Uh, um, I remember that. Yeah. He, uh, he was a, you know, he, he advocated for, um, you know, like, because he was, God, what, 80, or he was 92 when he died. So, I mean, he's he's been through a lot of, of decades. And so, you know, his early advocacy for, you know, uh, LGBT rights was somewhat novel back in the day. Um, oh, yeah. That sort of makes him kind of Dumbledore. Wasn't it? It was like after many years, after everybody, after everybody was kind of on board with the idea that, well, it doesn't matter. Like, it was like, oh, yeah, by the way, he's gay. Yeah, he came out when he was like 81 or two. I don't yeah. think it was so much about the political climate. I just think it just didn't quite. I mean, I'm not well, yeah, sure. Sort of pointing out the idea of like, well, who fucking cares? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of not pertinent to his jam. Yeah, I think that for him, it was just like he just decided, hey, you know what? I might as well be honest about it. Um, but he was he was amazing. And I got the the positive fortune to meet him a couple times at a conference in Las Vegas. Called, oh, wow. Really? That's cool. Yeah. The amazing meeting uh, yeah, J- amazing. after na- James, the amazing Damn. man, was his stage name. And well, I mean, I did get to hang out with him like for a few minutes, both times, like uh, one of them, he was, he was like off 
between sessions, like in a hallway or something. And he and I were just chatting for like five full minutes. He signed a copy of his book for me. And I mean, he pulled out this nice fancy blue pen. He's got beautiful handwriting. And then the next year he did a coin trick for me and just blew my fucking mind. I was laughing mm-hmm. the whole time because it was just a sleight of hand thing. And I mean, he didn't have to do that. There were 1500 people there. He was busy, but he, he was uh, just as warm and welcoming as possible. Um, I think the welcome pamphlet said like, Hey, if you bump into Randy, feel free to give him a hug. Um, yeah, this, this show yeah, was sort of like a, for James Randy. Yeah. He was like, like a prototype for a pre- for a pen and teller. Like they, I, you would hear them talk about him quite a bit. Yeah. He, he started of, them. He's he, justifiably he basically kicked off the skeptic him. movement. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, him and Carl Sagan and yeah, I mean that, that, that was mainly his thing, but he was also, uh, um, what was it? Psychop. Yeah. With, uh, like Carl Sagan and a handful of others started that, uh, I forget what it all stands for investigation of the paranormal or something committee. But, um, so like I got to, you know, the way I got to be here recording this was I, I think in like high school, I was first discovered podcasts. I looked for something on evolution, found a podcast called skeptoid, which I've been listening to every week since for like the last 13 years. And, uh, that show started because he was a fan of the skeptic community that James Randi started. And I found Rationally Speaking after that, which mentioned uh, Methods of Rationality, which brought me to the rationalist community in here. So it is no exaggeration to say that without James Randi, this show wouldn't be happening either. And uh, I don't have much else to say other than like, you know, it sucks that he's, he's, uh, that he's fucking dead. But uh, like the, I mean, I don't know how to sugarcoat it because I, I, I really you know, just don't have that. But like the, the nice fact of the the matter is, is that like his impact is enormous and has been propagating for decades and will continue to do so. Right. Like he he left such an enormous footprint and the world's a much better place for him. I got to think like coming towards the end of your life, that's got to be one of the like most reassuring things is there's no way the dude died wondering if he had had an impact on the world like that. That was kind of a done deal. Like, yeah, no, you, you won that game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that he could scarcely have done more. Um, he was, uh, and I mean, he was active until his late eighties with the James Randi educational foundation and stuff. Uh, anyway, total badass. but I, I had to just mention that even though it's a couple of weeks old news, but Randy is an awesome guy. And if anyone isn't familiar with any of his stuff, check him out. Um, That's cool. You got to meet him. I didn't know that. I did. It was, it was great. He, and like I said, he like is just as every bit as warm and fuzzy as you could imagine. Um, it was fantastic. You know, like you, 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 sometimes I, I met a lot of people at these conferences and uh, like, you know, some people are, are most of them actually were super nice, but you know, on occasion you bump into somebody who was, you know, kind of offhandish or whatever. And it's like, what are you doing? Like I, I didn't meet Neil deGrasse Tyson, although he is at one of these conferences. Um, but I, I hear that he's not like super warm and fuzzy with his fans. It's so, you know, I was, I don't know how that came up in my head. I was just thinking about, yeah, he does seem like, Oh, you probably don't seem like the most pleasant human in the world. But what's weird is like, why would you want to be a public, public figure and not be nice to the people who are like, Oh my God, it's Neil deGrasse Tyson. But that said, I can't corroborate those stories. So maybe he is actually super nice. I have no idea, but you know, maybe he's just as much fun as he in real life as he is on Twitter. So (laughs) he's just a wet blanket everywhere he goes. Um, all right, but I just had to get that out of the way. So, any uh, we, we covered the the plague news. Oh, we're re- recording this about an hour after. Uh, oh yeah, the press called it for Joe Biden. Just, yeah, there you go. Which uh, was no surprise, but it was 
surprisingly close for a week, but Trump still won't accept it. Although he did kind of give up and go golfing this morning. So who knows if, uh, <laughs> uh they just need to like finds it just like dangle something in front of his nose. It'd be like, Oh, here's this thing you could do that isn't that, that would still make people like call you cool and make you feel important. Why don't you go let, do it, this let him run here? a reality TV show That's where he exactly. plays the president. Why would you, sure. You can have your own fucking, you know, cable news network. Why? Whatever. Sure. Trump news. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go have fun with that. Yeah, go go pretend you can even make a mock Oval Office desk and sit behind that okay. and, and talk to people and act like you're the president, just like you did for the last four years. Go but play in that corner, little Lord Fauntleroy. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see how it all shakes out with uh, you know the legal battles and all the stuff he's trying to do to yeah, totally that's... shoot democracy right in the dick over all this. But um, <laughs> in dick. yeah, so that's the uh, that's the moment we're in right now. Yeah, actually, we were still putting the notes together for the show, and then you like shot me the link for the announcement. But. Yeah, which is uh, they, the the tipping point with Pennsylvania this morning. But I mean, it looks like every other state is going to keep going through Georgia, Nevada. I think they're all going to tip Biden. So. Yeah, that's the way they like, yeah, yeah, whole electoral college, blah, blah, blah. But really, it's the Associated Press that appoints the president. Well, for like the last week, we've been waiting, holding our breath to see if the guy who's ahead by 4 million votes will win the election. <laughs> yeah, electoral college is weird. It's weird. So speaking of okay. weird things, let's talk about weird segues that drive us right into this book. So uh, it starts out, remember when we last left our heroes, Harry and uh, Professor Quirrell had had their nice uh, kind of open book Q&A session about like what the fuck was going on at Hogwarts this year. And uh, then next it was the the mirrors. So yeah, it, we'd gotten, we'd gone. Yeah, we spent most of the last couple chapters dicking around with the uh, the final gateway to getting into this room to getting to the mirror um we were making potions last week that's right last two weeks i think it was just last week but the whole week before that was going through the rest of the quote unquote challenges which is basically just uh you know quarrel blasting his way through every wall on his way there i know yeah i did i've liked the the vibe in these last few chapters of like okay now you get to see the Voldemort that he has been hiding the whole time, uh, which is both like frighteningly sociopathic and, you know, like from what he's shown, I would call it like the level of power that Quirrell has shown now that he's not worrying about hiding it is way more than we've ever seen out of Dumbledore. And I guess you could chalk that up to like, you know, you know, humble, you know, reserve on on the part of of dumbledore but this is like totally the levels of power like totally over the top still with sort of an element of like oh i'm not even showing you you know everything i could do if i wanted to yeah it's interesting like a lot of dumbledore stuff seems to be kind of like judo where it's less about like i'm going to beat you in a arm wrestling contest and more like you know like the the trick with the mirror like that's not something that you know that voldemort could have uh fiend fired or about a cadaver his way out of right so it wasn't like, yeah, yeah, all your power. Good luck. I'm going to banish you. Um, it ended up not working yeah, out. Yeah, it's been bummer, kind but. of a recurring theme, which is sort of like, okay, we are at like there are these like few absolutes being introduced of, okay, you're not going to be able to defeat Voldemort on this. Like you're not going to be able to kill him. So, okay, let's, well, try to trap him in a thing. Like we're sort of like, like running into the, okay, what's the clever solution towards the problem that can't be defeated with brute force. Which, you know, is probably if there's a motif or theme or lesson from the book, that's got to be one of them, right? Uh, Often the solution to a problem isn't about just pushing hard enough to fix it. It's about finding which spot to push on. Well, that's the classic uh, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, wizard versus tank. 
Perfect. Yeah. Dynamic, <laughs> which is why always in any kind of uh, fantasy game, you always pick the wizard because they're the very clear stand in for the nerd that wrote the video game in the first place. And I, I, whenever I play games, it's always like I, I choose the stand in for what I would do in my real life. And like, why would I get into a sword fight? That sounds risky. I would rather just set the guy on fire from 30 feet away. So exactly. I would always, uh, uh, for me, I would always do like the uh, one of the two. So yeah, I could, I could never like uh, resist the okay, be the magic user in 1980s D&D terminology. Um, but I would either do that or just be like the, you know, completely baldly obvious tank with like no subtlety to him at all. <laughs> so like in the, uh, what was it? EverQuest. That was the OG uh, World of Warcraft. Um, so I was either, I think I did a necromancer actually. It was either the necromancer or I was a, like a um, uh, ogre tank. So I was like either one or the other. I guess Hagrid would be the ogre tank in this. In this I universe. think yeah, kind of would be, yeah, because we never had like a full fledged character. But although, yeah, he was. We didn't really have. There wasn't like fighting, fighting in this. But but he he can tank spells too. Like when they were trying to stun him, when Harry was fleeing to go save Hermione, just the the stunning hex just bounced off his face, and he's like, "What the hell do you think you're doing?" <laughs> yeah, the real like J.K. Rowling tanks were the giants that Hagrid, you know. Oh, I forgot about those. Those are the, those are the for realsy tanks. Yeah. All right. So. Where were we? Oh, yes. So they get to the mirror and they send Harry in uh, under the cloak because uh, most importantly, he doesn't like there's no reflection. So you're not at risk of being trapped because the mirror can't detect you. Um, Yeah. Which actually is the exact same thing that we were just talking about. You can't you can't overpower the mirror, but you can subtly push past it by by circumventing its power. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, like the description of like how it was this sort of like, it had no light. It wasn't standing on anything. It was sort of floating in midair, but even in a way that like more like disjoint from reality than floating, it was sort of like this thing set in an absolute position inside this reality. Cause it's not even really attached, like sort of kind of emphasize the idea that it's kind of a portal between places. Yeah, it wasn't one of those little folding mirrors that you can just buy and put in whatever you want. This is some, like, you know, immensely powerful yeah, artifact. Yeah, you sort of got the impression, like, if a meteor came in and, like, moved the Earth out of its axis, like, the mirror wouldn't move. <laughs> like, okay, the planet moved, but I'm not going anywhere. Magic with a capital M. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I had many frustrations with these chapters about things like being... I kept being like, okay, what the fuck is going on here? So, but like on that list was, I don't even know what the hell the mirror is or means or what it does or what the, like the exact parameters of what we were trying to accomplish here was. Um, Good questions. Uh, So yeah, after Quirrell makes a tunnel by just melting his way through the back of the room, um, they read the, uh, what is it? The world, the words of false comprehension. Which, if I had to guess, they're called that because the the intu- the the quick explanation of what coherent extrapolated volition is is easy to convey but hard to really understand. Um, like people, so yeah. The- I was, so I mean, I got that because and it was kind of obviously. I mean, your brain is already set to okay. This is the mirror of Erised, which is desire spelled backwards. So things spelled backwards is already in your head. So when the when the gobbledygook came out, I'm like, okay, what does that spell backwards? But, and then I had to sort of like stop myself because of like our own rules about Brian has to uh, stay an ignorant observer. Um, so I'm like, okay, this is such a strange, I, I did write it, write it down. What was the exact 
phrase. I do not show your face. I wrote it in our notes and now I can't find yeah. it. I do not show your face, but your coherent extrapolated volition. Yeah. And so that was such a, like an, like an odd combination of words. And uh, I was thinking, okay, that's gotta be a quote from something. So I Googled what like extrapolated volition or whatever. And like all the hits on Google were like less wrong in Yukaski. I'm like, okay, I guess. So I was like, you know, skimming the titles of articles that came up on the first page of Google. And it was like, okay, can't read that. can't read that. Uh, I guess I can't read any of this. So I still well, don't luckily, know if that's a quote to something or anything that I don't know other than like, as far as the internet's concerned, that is just a thing that Yudkowsky has said. It is a term that's developed by Yudkowsky, uh, but is used in the entire field of uh, like artificial intelligence alignment problems. Mm. Um, so it's not specific to this book. What it is, actually, there's a fun backstory to how this came to be on the back of the mirror. Yeah, so I guess when, like, you can tell me like, what of this am I allowed to know? So I couldn't look in because I was sure there's like background to this, but I knew that like there was and probably a lot that I like. If you were a reader of this. Uh, you know, originally, and you don't have the rest of the book or things you're trying to discover, you could, you pro- and probably lots of people did, like, saw that phrase and Googled it. I don't know how much that's a thing. Like, I Google it, and all I can see is, okay, spoilers ahead, so I can't go in there. But but somebody who, Actually, you know, wasn't restricted by that could see. So what what could I have known in that moment about what that phrase meant? Um Actually, literally everything. There's there's nothing about the phrase coherent extrapolated volition that is spoilerific to methods of rationality. Um it is a standalone idea, uh, like I said, developed um, by Yudkowsky, but now is common nomenclature in the field of friendly AI, where friendly means aligned to our virtue or aligned to our values. Um, so like most, most simply it's, uh, it wouldn't be like the, uh, the argument is that it wouldn't be sufficient if you're building, you know, a God tier recursive recursively self-improving AI where you're basically going to build something that can do whatever you want. It wouldn't be sufficient to just program in what you think your desires and motivations are. Um, Rather you want it to, you want to find a way to program in a way for it to know that it would actually act in our best interests, what we would want it to do, not what we tell it to do. Um, Which is the standard. Is that kind of what friendly AI means? If somebody says friendly AI, is that what they're talking about? Yes. Okay. Um, so, I mean, there's all kinds of fun math papers that I'm not equipped to read or understand on that explain this in terms of, of uh, decision theory and mathematics and stuff. But the the general concept, the English part, not the math part, I, I think I do understand enough. Um, like, there are, there are a number of ways that you could imagine super intelligence going, one of which being like you – you make this thing that say, okay, cool. You have access to everything you want and just uh, make everyone happy. Um, and it, it takes that. And well, there's all kinds of ways to do that in a way that we wouldn't actually want. Right. Um, so like, you know, you take give so everybody that's, a lifetime supply of heroin. Exactly. Um, so like there's, in fact, that I think that's in the, in the story here, they're talking about what makes this mirror interesting. And it's like, yes, this is a, they, they were trying to build basically a wish granting machine that wouldn't go obviously wrong. And that's the hard part. Cause like, you know, you insert any wish, like I wish people didn't die, which is the kind of wish Harry might make. Well, it's like, mm-hmm. granted now people can't die mm-hmm. and you get set on fire and you're just, you're in agony forever. And you're um, just going to sit there being really old. Yeah. Exactly. Like monkey paw. Right. Genie and, and so scenarios. like, 
the thing is like a, a, an AI isn't necessarily, you know, malicious or monkey pod in itself, but it's like, if you just tell it what to do, it'll probably do the easiest thing or the easiest way to get there, which will probably miss a lot of your important values. Yeah. Like there's another thought experiment of like, you know, the building's on fire and your grandma's inside and you tell this robot, Hey, get my grandma out of there. So it runs in and just throws her off the 30th floor and Hey, your grandma's out. And it's like, no, no, I want her out alive. Okay, great. And it brings her out and she's, you know, in a coma or whatever. Right. No, I, you know, I want her, I want her to be awake and stuff. Okay, great. Well, I got her out, but we lost her legs in the fire. It's like, no, I, so like all of the, you know, and again, it's not like the thing is trying to maliciously misunderstand you. It's just that there's, there's a lot more baked into the idea of save my grandma than the words save my grandma. Right. And sadly, uh, as, as a computer program, this is starting to sound an awful lot like uh, project requirements. Exactly. Oh, so that, you didn't tell me that they need, yeah. So this, that, that's the funny thing is like, it's, it's trivial enough to understand the problem with your, with your, with your code where it's like, no, do what I meant. Not what I fucking said, you dumbass. when I'm arguing with the, with the bullshit I write, but there's no stakes involved when you're building, you know, tedious or uh, pointless web apps. But when you're building something that might actually have the possibility of changing the, future of the human species, this becomes very important, right? Yeah. Um, there's there's not room for a misstep. Like the concern isn't that you're going to accidentally build Terminators that are going to try and kill everybody. But the concern is that like, uh, you know, there was- throw grandma out the top floor. Yeah, like somebody apparently threw out the idea back in the early days of this conversation 20 something years ago. Like, well, what if we just, you know, programmed it to like appreciate human smiles and like, because that, ref- that actually reflects actual happiness. And it's like, okay, cool. Let's, if it's, if it's, if it's only goal is maximize the number of smiles, like it will start just, you know, uh, back to heroin. Well, it could, it, or even worse, you could just start making molecule sized smiles out of all the atoms available to you. <laughs> right. And so the AI doesn't hate you, but you're made of atoms that it can use to make more smiles. And so like, well, right, even at like higher level, like have you seen that there's an episode of uh, the twilight zone starring a very young, uh, rich Cunningham, was Ron Howard. Uh, he can like mind control people and he basically like rubs him the wrong way anytime anybody's unhappy. So everybody has to pretend to be happy. So it'd be like that. that like whatever wild. can get like an artificial level of, of yeah, it's, yeah, it's intentionally pretty creepy. But Kind of like um, Killjoy or not Killjoy, Kill, what was his name? The guy, the villain in Jessica Kilgrave. Jones. Killgrave, yes. Murder coffin. Where, where it's like, yep, put, put on all your smiles. Everyone act happy, but like, they're all in their head screaming against it the whole time. But he's like, oh, everyone's, you know, happily being my butler my whole life. Um, one can't help with the recent conversation just now thinking of Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> and Kilgrave Kill woke up or, you know, grew up being uh, very similar to, uh, you know, somebody who had everything handed to them their whole life. Anyway, so th- that's coherent extrapolated volition. That's the mirror. And the, the awesome part of it is that like, okay, yes, this, this mirror was an unfinished project that will grant wishes. Instead, I think all it does is it's supposed to show you, uh, like, I think when Harry saw it in Canon, it showed him, him with his family, right. His, his birth parents, which he assumed would make him happy. But like, and Ron saw himself as holding the Quidditch cup and being head boy and all this stuff. So like, is that, so we, I get, so I, I was uh, a few things I was lost on, uh, in these few chapters. So, the big one being like, okay, what is this mirror? So are we going with, it is everything the mirror of era said was in the original, but along with additional explanations of what that means. Cause I guess my impression was this, that it, 
that it might be just something similar, but not exactly the same, but that whole, like you see what you like, you see your deepest heart's desire. Like that's still the, a, that's still how it seems to most people. I think that's how it seems to most people, but I think more than just seeing your heart's desire, you know, like you surrounded by whatever the college cheerleading squad or something, Mm -hmm. it's, it's your actual, it's more fulfilling than that in that it's like what you actually want. Um, so I, I think that it's supposed to be like, go at like, okay, this is what you really want. Right. And so like, you know, I guess I wasn't even really, I wasn't completely clear on like, was, you know, showing your heart's desire, even what it did for a living anymore. Like if that was still true in this world, but I think when, when Harry was talking about the, uh, what he understood of the third floor corridor before they, before he had the revelation with Voldemort and Quirrell and stuff, he was saying that all he knew about the third floor corridor was the end result was some mirror that apparently showed you in a situation that you found highly desirable. So I think for the average person that goes before it, that's what they're seeing. Um, And and Harry already heard this. It's because like your memory then gets so confused between things I remember from the story versus things from the original books versus what did I already know here? So Harry already knew about a thing that was a mirror. Yeah, Harry already knew that apparently the big payoff was a mirror that would show you in some happy situation, but he learned that off screen and he just told us that when we got to the third floor corridor. And, how did, and, and that was something, and he knew that because that was hints that Dumbledore dropped in his lap. No, I think that was uh, just like the, you know, what the students talked about because everyone went down this because they were told not to, right? So, oh, that more, see, so many things get lost in my head. So other students had already been down here because. Dumbledore intentionally set it up as only apparently hard to get into, but not actually hard to get into. Right. In fact, he just straight up tells Harry, yeah, you can't get in because you don't know this because yeah. the door is locked and you don't know the spell. Yeah. <laughs> and that was like that. And that's how we got into the, uh, which was a cool line uh, in here. That's, that is the key uh, as Harry is talking with Quirrell about this, where we figure out, Oh, Dumbledore has known you are Voldemort all this time. Yes. Um, which then gets me to the, uh, and then these like break the fourth wall lines. Um, I love where, this line. Yeah. Where, wait, wait, so Harry, yeah Harry says to, to Quirrell, like, oh, okay, so like Dumbledore knew all this time. And Quirrell says, what else is Dumbledore to think? That you are an actor in a play whose stupid author has never met a real 11 year old? <laughs> Only a gibbering dullard would believe that. <laughs> Um, like, yeah, it's a cool, like, like wink at the camera moment. I mean, like, and everything we've been thinking about, like, ah, uh, you know, and it's funny because I, I can remember like the many times, uh, that we've recorded that I've said like, oh, it doesn't bother me at all that Harry reads like a, you know, college sophomore. Um, but that, yeah, like the amount of time that like people looking at this have been like, oh no, that's totally believable. It's funny that like in retrospect, how often I think just out of a, out of a desire for, because like in the end of this, like the having like seen the, the full Harry from the start to end of the story, he is this like very appealing, like you, you do like root for Harry um, for the full arc of like character development that he goes through. But, and I think maybe because then you sort of like retroactively don't want to like fault him for anything as he was, as he was going through like the number of people that sort of like tried to argue for the plausibility of his ridiculous precociousness. Like, oh no, it's not like, and I remember, like when I was 11 years old, I was like way smarter than most people thought. And I would totally be able to pick up on this, yada, yada, yada. 
Um, so it's very funny to like finally get these kind of like, well, no, of course, like that's it was ridiculously like precocious of him to you know be arguing with adults in this way and be you know quoting articles that he read from scientific journals and blah blah blah. Clearly, it's yeah, not the mind Harry, of a regular eleven year old on the inside is like sixty something years old. Um, which uh, I'm trying to think this. I don't think we get any more so we can kind of point out that all of the quibbler headlines are in some sense accurate. Um, like the, there was one when Harry goes to the train station where it says boy who lived secretly 69 years old or something. And that would be the oh, age that yeah, Voldemort yeah. was. Oh, really? Um, yeah. The other one, well, like yeah. boy who lived gets straight up Malfoy pregnant. Like if you see that as him planting the seeds of love and kindness in his heart, um, all of, <laughs> all of the quibbler headlines were deliberately accurate. In, in a certain yeah. perspective. Well, that's, what's interesting about then like the quarrel, like now playing back, like the quarrel that we've seen this whole time is that like putting that age together, because even quarrel, if he's like 60 something, hasn't played like a 60 something year old. He's played like a 40 something, you know, he, he has played like within the age that he's portrayed like in the story. And so then it sort of looks like, oh, okay, but you know, he's even older than that. So then the quarrel that we've seen this whole time starts to take on this kind of Dorian Gray, you know, idea of like, oh, you're even kind of older, like you are more jaded than your physical appearance would would let on. Totally. Quarrel's I think Quirrell, like Quirin is Quirrell the person, is like in his thirties. And oh, so right, for him yeah. to be Yeah, so I mean he would have been, you know, like a teenager during Voldemort's first rise and stuff. And so, like, for him to be arguing, you know, so passionately about the merits of authoritarianism and dictatorship because, you know, the world failed. It's like, what, you formed these opinions when you were 15? Like, I guess that yeah. makes perfect sense for Quarrel, but, uh, or for the young Tom Riddle, but, yeah. Um, it, yeah, so Quarrel seemed older than he was because he was. Um, and Harry is in this weird kind of spot where, like, his brain was implanted with mm-hmm. uh, an older person's brain, but then went on to never have any memory of that, which reminds me. One of the early mysteries that they never touch back on, but is clear on a reread when he gets Neville's remember all uh, after using the time travel fuckery and it, it shines so bright that even in the sun, it, it's like casting shadows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the interpretation there, see now this is fun because I get to start spilling all the fun stuff. That was <laughs> throughout the story. Uh, Things that are no longer spoilers. You know, that, that, that is what happens apparently if someone holds a remember all who doesn't remember 60 years of their entire life. Wait, so play that scene. Back to me, what it? Are you so he, about like he, a, yeah, he ahead. picks up he picks up the remember all and like he's like yeah I win and then he kind of trails off because it's it's shining like a mini sun. Um, and Wait, he wonders remember all? That, what scene is this? I guess I'm forgetting what a remember all is. That was the first broomstick lesson. That was also in the canon book. Yeah. It's that useless trinket that Neville has that glows if you forgot something. Oh, because um, it's just a reminder. So, it's not like it has memories or something, and it. it's just a right. And like, you know, as, as helpful it is to remember that you forgot something, like I forget something all the time. I need to know what I forgot. That's why this is a useless trinket rather than something useful. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's funny, but it was in the canon book. So he threw it in this one, but he, it, it, it radiated like a mini sun. Uh, and I think, like that, I think that's because you've forgotten all the things, right? You forgot 60 years worth of stuff. So, <laughs> um, so they're, they're basically sitting there trying to hammer out like, all right, well, Obviously, if this is uh, if Dumbledore knew that you know you're, you're you're a little Voldemort, then this is a trap meant to trap little Voldemorts or any Voldemorts. Then obviously you can't stand in front of the mirror either. So fuck, what do we do? Um, well, it seems like he, like 
Quirrell already knew this, that like the uh, invisibility cloak was going to be key to this whole plan. Yeah, he was playing one level ahead this whole time. Yeah. But and I, and I guess we wouldn't have like that's a solid theory, but he that wouldn't have been a guarantee at this like him walking into this scenario. Um, he would have he's still sort of like waiting on confirmation that his like solid theory about how that would work like needs to be confirmed. And he's like, that's the first thing he wants when Harry comes in. Um, and he's having then like, he's like, okay, walk behind the mirror. Like his, our very first thing we do when we walk into this room is Quirrell wants to verify that his theory about like, how would the interaction between uh, the invisibility cloak and the mirror work? And so he's like, okay, you know, that's like checkbox one. So that, that could be him doing his first experiment, which, which sounds plausible. But if I'm going to put on my, my Mad-Eye Moody hat, like it sounds entirely plausible to me that, it, you know, he time turned at some point. Stole Harry's cloak for a couple of hours yeah. and had Professor Sprout walk down here wearing that thing to see if she cast a reflection. Yeah, because he wouldn't um, want to do it. Right. He'd want to like make sure. Yeah, that, so, yeah, and that sort of comes across like less as like being scientifically rigorous and just sort of like solid paranoia. Right. And he seems like he's pretty solidly paranoid. Yeah. So if I was Quirrell, that's what I would have done. And I would have done the whole theater of having Harry do it just for the sake of him thinking that I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, that said, I think the idea to say, so what they eventually settle on is like, okay, well, we don't know what Dumbledore could have said is like, Hey, this is the, the, the requisite to get the stone out. But we know that at some, it's, it's probably, you know, in Dumbledore's whole state of mind would encompass whatever the rule is. And like the rule, quote unquote, whatever it is, has to be something that like comes from an actual important desire of yours. Like Harry says like, well, why couldn't it just be you know, uh, say your left hand is to be holding a small blue pyramid and two large red pyramids and your right hand has to be squeezing onto a hamster. (laughs) And I I wish you like, you know, be in the, and go in a time machine and being in the, in Yudkowsky's head as he's trying to figure out what weird thing to describe at that moment. Man, he's your man. Yeah. I think that if you read his other stuff, he he does just have a sense of humor like that. And it's really funny. But the, uh, I like Kroll's reply. He says, no, I think not. The legends are unclear on what rules can be given, but I think that must have something to do with the mirror's original intended use. It must have something to do with the deep desires and wishes arising from within a person. Squeezing mayonnaise onto a hamster will not qualify as that <laughs> for most people. Yeah. yeah and as, as I was <laughs> the qualifier there for, for most people is what makes it the funniest people. for me. For some people that is a terminal value that the mirror will reflect. <laughs> there's mayonnaise people. Sure. There's mayonnaise people. <laughs> Yeah, and always as I'm reading through it, all read as like, okay, we're just sort of like setting up the parameters for this thought experiment. Like, uh, like this did feel like, okay, this is this is an important like concept central to the book and to the you know a thing that the author is into. So we're kind of like laying out all the parameters so that we can then get to the kind of the the core of this little dilemma we're putting in front of you. Yeah, totally. And so then the 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 dilemma is you can't like you know hoodwink someone's brain into uh, being what the mirror needs because it has to be forces that arise from within yourself, like your own actual desires. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he says that you know he can't just send a pawn with false memories, but that's why he made up all these stories for all the nobles out that are currently unconscious in the corridor or something wherever they went. Um, and so, yeah, and this like as reading through this, I mean, just for like a feedback on the experience of a new reader to this, it was hard. I think maybe because this is all such like an important point in the plot, like everything in the story has been building up to, you know, these 
portions of the plot here that I think maybe because this was so hyper analyzed as to how this was going to play out that, that the descriptions of like actually the events that are passing, um, it sort of got lost the importance of just sort of making it clear as to what's going on right now. Because as I was reading, I had to go like, it was, wasn't until like reading through this a second time and, and actually not fully until you and I are talking about it right now. Um, just the, okay, what's going on right now kept getting lost on me because it wasn't fully clear to me the sort of like how central is it to the function of what the mirror is, that it is a thing that is granting wishes. Um, and so as they're like, sort of like trying to hash all this out, like what are the parameters of this is going on? I'm, I was still sort of lost as to, okay, what is it we're actually talking about here? Um, because on that first read through the idea of like, okay, this is, you know, how it's going to decide whether or not to grant a wish wasn't even fully clear to me. So there's just a lot, there was a lot of kind of frustrating confusion. Yeah. I think there, there is a bit of like kind of losing the forest for the trees here where, you know, it gets into the molecular biology of one tree, but you kind of forget to keep an eye on the forest. Yeah. You can sort of see like, Oh, because this is all like, because the details of this are all going to be super important and you'll have thought that out, uh, you know, so very exactly then you kind of like lose sight of, okay, what is the, um, you know, what is the experience of this going to be to somebody, you know, running through it for the first time, that just small little thing. And there's a, like the very last, you know, couple paragraphs in the, um, in the last chapter that we're going to do this week. Um, the whole thing about like Harry pulling out a gun. I'm like, like that was completely lost on me until this. I'm like, wait, where the fuck did that come from? What just happened here? So it was a lot. And that was like, sort of was really distracting. And uh, for me reading it this week was the amount of weight of the like, wait, what? Like how many times I was like, wait, what? Um, you know, if I'm going to galaxy brain that, I wonder if like kind of that sense of bewilderment is kind of like how Harry is feeling through a lot of this. And if, it, if that's communicated as part of the reading experience, that would be kind of an awesome no, move. Yeah, but I, no, I, don't, I don't quite get to Because it was especially, it was just like unenjoyable in the moment of doing it. So I don't think it would have been something done on purpose. But it was even small things just like, okay, I, I like literally don't know what, what is happening right now because the... And then going reading through it again, like the, what I'm thinking of now is like, okay, and then Harry's spelling out the word gun. But like that first, you had to, I had to read through that a second time to realize that's what he was doing. So it was all like, it was too much subtlety, I think because the intricate details were important and there was kind of a, a sense that like, oh, you were going to pick up, like I can, like the, the sense of like what level of detail is necessary to communicate what's going on, I think got kind of distorted. So yeah. it's just sort of like, like a, a low, a, a, fine green critique of just what was going on. It's not so much like storytelling or even prose. It was just like, okay, like I needed, I needed to not be as difficult as it was to just you know, <laughs> follow basic plot elements going on here. I didn't understand what was going, uh, everything going on with the mirror. Not like once now I understand it. It's not that those were like hard things to understand, but it was, wasn't easily communicated. It wasn't, it wasn't easy for me to understand what was going on in that moment without having to like go through and read it a second time. And so it was kind of like, and then that sort of like was frustrating in terms of, you know, my investment in what that outcome is. It's like, okay, you made me like work extra hard. You made me read twice. Yeah. I think, uh, I try to recall my, my exact time reading it first time, especially to, you know, when you're sitting there on the edge of your seat waiting for these chapters to come out and then you get through them as fast as possible. Like when, when Harry, it says like he reaches into his pouch and spells out three English letters and then he whips out a gun. And so like you, you get it, but only if you're managing to hold it all in your head while your heart's pounding and you're reading as fast as possible. And my confusion with that too, is because we know there's a gun already there. 
So that was on my first read through. I was like, okay, I guess he grabbed the guy because you don't like, you know, connect it immediately later with the like, oh, you spelled out some words. Um, Cause it's not like, oh, he spelled out some three words and grabbed a gun. It didn't say that. So, and I guess, I mean, and it's not, that stuff's not super important, but then it also like pushes my button because going, especially having gotten into this part with, okay, these are little sort of mental puzzles going on. Like the kind of recurring theme with what does rub me the wrong way about these stories is when it sort of like butts into the kind of off-putting internet chat room vibe to the book where like, this is all a big game of gotcha. And so there's like some like little self-critical voice in the back of my head of, oh, if it was hard for me to follow along what was going on here, there's some comic book guy telling me that I'm done for not having like figured it out as I was going along. And then some other, and then like, well, no, fuck you then. I'm like, I'm done and like flipping the table over and walking away. Like that's, so there's all the like buttons <laughs> getting pushed in my head as I'm reading. It was like, you know, like this is too tiresome to play this stupid game. Um so that's what's going on. So I think like when stuff like that comes up, it's sort of like, ex- like my brain is extra sensitive to that. It's like, oh, is this like, am I losing a game of gotcha that I wasn't interested in playing in the first place? I mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind is the context of when this was written. So like it was, you know, he knew that he had an audience that was reading this on the minute that it was posted and I've been talking about it for years. And so like, I think the fun of setting up all these puzzles for like, um, you know, like having all these little things fall into place and having rewarding a very careful, slow read. I think that is, is, was largely intentional, but it might make it different when reading this as a, you know, an all encompassing book all at once without any of the, like the yeah, slow down or the conversation. Like, yeah. To meet both those needs at the same time is hard. Um, but yeah. And so that's sort of like the, that's the price that's paid in trying to keep it kind of, you know, stay at the level of an interesting puzzle is that, okay, somebody was just like coming in at the first time, it's going to be harder for them. And I don't, don't like if to be able to, there is a perfect execution of that, which can both not be hard because like the keeping up with like just the mundane, you know, elements of the plot that are, are passing through. It's not, it's not impossible to both do that in a, in a meaningful way. And also leaving the things that you want to be subtle, subtle, remaining subtle, like you can do both, but that like, that's a harder requirement to meet so yeah but so yeah that was like that was the frustration that i ran into with this was like it was hard there was a lot of elements at this point where like oh it's like taxing on my brain to keep up with the kind of mundane elements of just like what's going on right now and some of us enjoy the brain tax but i hear what you're saying no yeah but it's like taxing on the things that are kind of like not super important um but so yeah like the puzzly things are like still there but the but I think sort of trying to remain subtle about about things that are important to the puzzle ended up like some more smaller thing. Like like the puzzle would have still been true if it had been uh, more like straightforwardly explained. Like okay, what is this mirror? What does it do? And what are the things going on? Like this all worked at you know on a second and third reread of like figuring out what's going on here. All of this works, but but that like comes at like a a difficult but not necessary sacrifice of like how is understanding those the smaller points work for just somebody like running through and reading this as a, at a you know normal everyday level of attentiveness how hard is it to keep track of this yeah no i hear what you're saying like the, the mirror in particular i mean that's essentially what the machine intelligence research institute is working on is uh finding a way to uh like 
basically mathematically ex- uh, explain in a way that can be understood by a computer what a coherent extrapolated volition is and making sure that or, or trying to ensure that when we start building AGIs that the first ones have uh, that sort of those that are in the the vernacular of the field friendly with a capital F. Um, so like, it, I remember there was a thing on Reddit when that chapter came out and someone's like, yeah, I didn't like how the author like, you know, talked so fondly about basically what Miri does and Miri's the shorthand for machine intelligence research Institute. Cause that's a lot of syllables. And I remember commenting, I was like, yeah, how dare the author spend a couple of paragraphs, you know, uh, talking fondly of his life's work, his life's work. in exactly. his book. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that part was totally like, and this does feel like sort of the, like, okay, we are arriving at the moral of the story. Not so much even that, but like, like this did feel like, okay, a lot of this buildup was so that we can get to this core idea of this thing that's super important to me. Like that part totally like worked for me. Like having it like being, you know, difficult to understand all of that was, was one thing, but well, no, I'm totally too- on board of the like, okay, you've built like, we've been setting up all of these ideas for hundreds and hundreds of pages. And now here's the, like, here's this idea I want to talk to you all about that's super important to me like that that part i'm totally on board with yeah and the mirror too uh for the sake of the story wasn't finished before atlantis fell so like yeah. it never turned into a wish granting machine now all it can do is kind of like show you what your wishes look like yeah. or something well uh, so and so this was another point of my confusion because at one point harry um now i can't remember harry over it came up in the conversation that um that the atlanteans were building this as some sort of effort to save the civilization that they knew was about to be destroyed. Was that? Yeah. And then, so then I was not clear. So how did it serve that purpose? What, what was it that they were thought that they were building that was going to help them do that? If you could just, build a wish-granting machine. Like, like, Oh, that my wish is that our civilization is not being destroyed. Right. And, and okay. if you could ask it, how do I save the world or something, then it would actually show you. Um, so like that's, that's in Nick Bostrom's book, super intelligence, he outlines like four primary different kinds of, of artificial general intelligences. And one of them is I think colloquially called the Oracle AI, which is basically the, the super smart God in a box where you can just ask it whatever you want. It'll give you whatever answer. Yeah. And so the mirror could have also served that purpose. Do. Right. So it's like, how do I cure a cancer? And it's like, Oh, like this. And it'll just tell you. Um, so because I got I got lost a lot in the idea that because uh, they just described it as oh it builds many universes that only exist within what you can see you know inside the mirror but that uh, it's not like a fake universe that there's an actual universe on the other side of this mirror that didn't exist except for the fact that this mirror created it um, and so that seemed that part is confusing like yeah it was confusing it seemed like I, I guess I was running with the idea that that something about that was central to how Atlantis thought it was going to save itself. And then I, I didn't understand like how we got there from, from there. Um, I think Atlantis fell before the project was finished, but then uh, Quirrell says that he thinks that uh, according to legend, like Phoenixes came from a realm developed inside this mirror. Yeah. And so like, it, you're right. Like apparently it builds actual universes on the other side of the reflection and that whole thing. Uh, if I, maybe I'd spent some time thinking about, maybe I could connect it, but I don't, see an obvious connection to how that works with uh, an AGI, unless like if you're asking an Oracle AGI, okay, how do I cure cancer? It will simulate an entire, you know, as much of a universe. Cancer was cured. 
Right. It'll simulate as much of a universe as it needs to in order to answer that question. Yeah. That that might be yeah, kind and that's of okay. and that's, yeah, and that's how Harry like is attacking a couple problems in these in these chapters. But and I get and I and I got the impression that part of like what was sort of impressive about the sort of magnitude of the magic involved in making this mirror was that those realities that are inside the mirror are not fake. Like they actually exist because you wanted them to exist. Um, they're on the other side of the mirror and only exist inside the, you know, tiny area that you can see, but that they are not fake anymore. They're not, they're not like an invention of magic. They are a thing that has become real. That's a good point. Yeah. And that is different from the AGI thing where, you know, if it has to simulate a universe that it's figured out the solution to cancer, like it, that, that universe that it simulates is just a simulated universe. You don't get real phoenixes out of that. Um, you get real information, but phoenixes are things you can pet and, you know, teleport with. They're not just like, they're not a, you know, the output of a calculator. Yeah. Um, And that was kind of like like the cool place where my brain went with, because then uh, where Harry goes with Quirrell in a, in a minute is like, oh, could what's on the other side of this be the product of Dumbledore thinks an afterlife is a real thing? And so is what's on the other side of this what he thinks that is? And that, well, okay, if, if the rules around this mirror are, you know, the things it makes are real, then uh, did Dumbledore create a real afterlife, you know, by wishing that it existed? Um, oh, damn. On the, the, on the other end of this mirror. So, yeah, because if we're saying that, like, okay, the things it makes is, are real, then if Dumbledore is imagining an afterlife where his brother and sister and everybody he cares about are alive, then on the other side of that mirror, it's true. Yeah, like, that's, that really that's a good is. point. It never and it's not like a that. simulation of his brother and sister, which then sort of, like, makes you, like, have to question the idea of, well, what does real mean? Um, but that if it's real, that the, so, okay, that really is a... So his brother and sister really are like when he thinks he's talking to them on the other side. Well, if real is real, then they really are there. Um, so then you're like, okay, well, what the hell does that mean? But um, that is a really good question. And I don't have good answers for that. Uh, and that's not me being dodging spoilers. That's just actually genuinely thought provoking. And I look forward to people dissecting that for us in discord. Um, well, I guess so. maybe it's not, except no, they did say it like, like real is real. It's not, it's not, it's not fake. And that's how like Phoenix. So yeah, Phoenix, Phoenixes exist because they were invented on the other side of that mirror and came over here. And so, yeah, so if so Dumbledore if invented an afterlife on the yeah. other side and now it's real, then okay. Like maybe heaven is, you know, an invention of Dumbledore on the other side of the mirror, but you know, however it got here, there it is. That'd be tight. I wonder like once you leave the mirror, if that universe is just deleted, and only things that have come out of the universe get to stay, like yeah. phoenixes. But then that seems to imply that if there's some way for a phoenix to come out, then like couldn't he reach in and pull out Aberforth? Yeah, like that. That yeah, sounds like it kind of yeah. Then you're kind of like mind fucked about well, when you say real, like what does that even mean? Right? Do you get you don't get Aberforth? Presumably, you get one that the mirror and it, it oh, yeah, makes saying, that is like, as then, accurate as possible from yeah, your is, own imagination of Aberforth. But it, but it seems like the, if you say that, like that to me doesn't seem real. That's like, okay, your own invention of the thing. If it said like it's real, like there's the Asimov quote that, uh, or is it Asimov or Heinlein? I don't know. But a, a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Like if, if like we're that. calling it real and you, put, and you pull out an Aberforth and you cannot at all tell the difference between that Aberforth and whatever you were going to call a real Aberforth, then that's the real Aberforth. Right. The, the real key is like, 
does this Aberforth know things that only Aberforth knew and not that you only yeah. knew that he knew? Like, does he know the combination is the same as closet? Definitely saying that, like, that seems like we have definitely said that. Like, okay, yeah, that would totally be true. But somehow you're still holding, trying to hold on to the idea that, like, oh, no, but it's still a simula- simulation. But yeah. So, so, yeah, I don't know. I like it. That's awesome. I don't have much else to to speculate on there other than I feel like that's a lot of good. See, this is the fun part where like, you know, if we had a week to discuss this or, you know, a month or something on, you know, uh, the official Reddit thread for this chapter, like this is the kind (laughs) of fun shit people would have been talking about. And I don't know if this, if this all came up back then or not, but that is, uh, see that that's the fun part for me is like, it's, it's fun to think about, but you've already thrown out a ton of stuff and years of me having known about this book, hadn't thought about like, wait, did he make an afterlife? Is Aberforth really in there? Like, all that stuff is, well, I'm is remembering, outstanding. Like, maybe I'm like misunderstanding, but like it was said, or at least as far as like Quirrell's understanding of it, that like that is, I'm, I'm not imagining that, that uh, he's saying the things that exist on the other side of this mirror are not inventions. They have become real like that. We've decided that's what's going on here. Right. I, I don't, I don't know. Cause like the, you know, for like, remember for the average student, they go in there and they see themselves, you know, as head boy or dating the girl they want to date or something. Right. Like, it's not like it, it like it wouldn't make, I guess maybe would it simulate a universe where Ron was head boy and had the Quidditch cup or would it just, you know, show him what he wanted to see? I'm not exactly guess, sure yeah, it's the difference if it between, makes universes for everybody or if it just can do that. Yeah. I guess I'd have to go back and read it again because I, I get, no, I think it was saying like, Oh, we're not just like showing you a movie of what it would look like if you, if this thing were true, it's saying like, no, on the other side of the mirror, the thing you're hoping for is true. So I guess it's like some kind of like multiverse idea that like, okay, the mirror has like the mirror is showing you the other universe in which the thing you want is true. So I guess there's some other universe in which heaven is real. The mirror's most characteristic power is to create alternate realms of existence, though these realms are only as large in size as what can be seen within the mirror. It is known that people and other objects can be stored therein. It is claimed by several authorities that the mirror alone of all magics possesses a true moral orientation, though I'm not sure what this could mean in practical terms, yada yada. We know Quirrell doesn't know what evil is. Um I cannot. I guess, yeah, you just wonder, like, so it sounds like, okay, yeah, there really is a heaven on the other side of this mirror, but that heaven only exists within the angle that you're able to view from the. So, yeah, you're like, okay, what the hell does that mean that a universe only exists inside this tiny space? Then you make a universe that is, uh, you know, how much is 25 square feet? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, how much is 2,500 square feet of heaven? <laughs> what goes on inside 2,500 square feet of heaven? It's heaven, you see, you know. What is, so, point, what is 0.1% of pure happiness? Right. All right. So you grabbed the uh, the quote where um, Harry's saying that uh, that your class of hypotheses about somebody needing to get the stone for good or honest purposes might be mistaken. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It was like a good idea because that was kind of a like a big theme and like all of the little debates between Harry and Dumbledore uh, that came up. Quarrel. Uh, uh, no, Harry and Dumbledore. That because so what what Harry says to Quarrel is. Um, you're thinking that the mirror is only going to grant the wishes of somebody who is doing it with good intent. And Harry says, I don't think Dumbledore would set it up that way because Dumbledore understood that you can have good intents for all kinds of shitty things. 
Um, and so he's not going like the intent of the person asking for it, you know, everybody asking for all kinds of evil, awful things, you know, everybody thinks they're the good guy in the story and Dumbledore knows that. So he's not going to make the, uh, the barrier to entry, something as low as, oh, you believe in the, the righteousness of your cause. That's um, a good point. Yeah. And you're right. That was with him and Dumbledore. Like I, I always like going straight to reductum ad Hitlerum. And like you know, Hitler thought he was probably thought he was doing the right thing, right? And yet, the mirror actually possesses a moral orientation, which wouldn't show him. Yeah, here's how you exterminate all the Jews and whatever, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I do like how when he says that, uh, so Quirrell's like, "Well, why wouldn't the headmaster set a retrieval charm or retrieval rule like that?" And he says, "Because Dumbledore knows how easy it is to end up believing that you're doing the right thing when you're actually not. It'd be the first possibility he imagined." But I like that. And that, that line always feels deep for me because like this Dumbledore has been fleshed out and it was done in the canon books too, but more slowly and kind of felt retconny. But we're like Dumbledore is, you know, demonstrated to be a man consumed by the grief of his mistakes and his hard choices, right? Yeah. Like we learn in the next chapter that he, you know, deliberately sacrificed Lily and James Potter. And he probably feels bad about that. There's no way they don't have a pedestal in his room, but he decided it was for the greater good. And he was probably right. You know, at some point you have to do tough shit. But like, the thing is, is that you can also feel that way while doing the wrong thing, but you can make yourself believe it's the right thing yeah. for the greater good of the world's whole thing. Yeah. Right? And Dumbledore, like Dumbledore is like simultaneously. And I really like this about like the Dumbledore that we see in this, in this book is Dumbledore is aware of the shitty things he did in the name of the greater good while also being aware of how many shitty things people do in the name of the greater good. And so he's sort of like aware of the kind of tenuousness of his position um, and sort of like making and trying to not ignore it and have that like informed decisions he makes up front. He's like, okay, you know what? I've made the best decision I can make with the fucked up situation I'm presented with. And I want to make sure I don't tell myself that it was definitely the right thing to do. It was my best guess at the, at the right thing to do. And I totally could have been wrong. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's awesome. I love it. And then I had the line about Quirrell or about the hamster. And then, um, so then there was the, 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 the kind of twist idea that they have is like, well, okay. So we know that we need to have like a, a prerequisite might be, uh, Dumbledore knowing that, you know, Voldemort is dead and that the stone is safe. We don't know what other rules could be, but we know that Dumbledore's entire state of mind would be sufficient since we don't know what's necessary in there. Simulating the entire mind sounds safe. And he's like, or Quirrell says, well, sure, but we can't confund us to somebody else. And he's like, ah, fuck you. Good, good one. And he's like, no, I'm being serious. Uh, so, so that's the one they run with where. Yeah, and, uh, I remember, he, and then, and then he like made, I, I can't remember if, if it was that Quirrell made him say it in Parseltongue or just Harry immediately went to saying it in Parseltongue. But then I'm like, you know, I brought my lawyer to it and was like, okay, let me um, parse out every single thing that Harry has now said about what, what were his motivations for suggesting this. And he did not say anything that where <clears throat> it was totally possible for what Harry said uh, in response to that, for it to still be true that he suggested that as a way to um, sabotage Quirrell. Although I guess it turns out that that wasn't the case or it didn't like work out, but like the things that he literally said from the, like, if you're going to apply the parcel mouth rules, um, it was still possible that Harry did it on purpose to sabotage Quirrell. 
Right. What Harry says is that- and she's like, like, who knows? Yeah. You asked me to think of ideas and this is what I came up with. Like, I don't know anything you don't know about the if, if this is a trap. Like, I knew you'd be suspicious and ask this very question, but this is the idea I came up with. So, like, you can't call it- Yeah, a there's that, like, nothing he said there is, it, like, literally contradicts the idea of, like, no, I am telling this to you to sabotage you. Like, both of those can still be true based on just, like, the literal words that he said. Which is weird because, like, I guess, like, it turns out that that's not the case because none of that pans out, but- <laughs> Yes. Yeah, getting, so getting past the Parsimouth rule. That, that would have passed the Parsimouth rules. And it did. Uh, yeah. He says all that in Parsimouth, and then it says Harry felt a strong impulse to smile and suppressed it. And Quirrell says, lovely, and he was smiling. I suppose there are some threads from an inventive mind that e- that even questioning in partial tongue cannot neutralize. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, yeah, like he was like hoping it was going to help sabotage him, but it just didn't pan out. But it, Yeah, it seems like he, he thought of the idea before you know, he considered whether or not it would sabotage him. But then he was like, maybe it, you know, I don't know if that was one of my motivations or not. Like it could have been, I, you know, it just, that's what came into my mind. Uh, you can't call it my fault. I, it, I just thought of it. Yeah. And so they end up running with that Coral confunds himself. Oh, before he does that, he puts some magic circle around Harry that if you touch it, it'll explode and kill you. And the resonance will uh, destroy us both. Um, and he, since I don't want you throwing yeah. He draws a plot lawyer approved circle around Harry. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, he, he says, uh, since I don't want any throwing shoes. And then he says, this barrier will, and this is in partial tongue will explode if touched by you or other material thing. And, uh, then he says, yeah, the residents might lash out at me afterwards, but you would also be dead. Um, <laughs> so he's got him in his, in his lawyer circle. And then he thinks, you know, he's concentrating the lawyer circle. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> and then he confunds himself and then he blinks like an old man and wanders over to the mirror. And then he's sitting there arguing with Aberforth about, Hey, thanks. You know? Yeah, no, Voldemort's gone. Um, yeah, I like, and we only got to see, it sort of like felt like a, like a phone conversation you're hearing. We only get to see, uh, or hear, we only get, uh, Quirrell slash Dumbledore's half of that conversation. Right. Uh, like there's, there's some, uh, Aberforth and was it Adriana or whatever his sister's name? Like, Ariana, yeah. yeah, Ariana. Like they're on the other side of the mirror, but we don't get to like see or hear what they're saying. We only get like a half conversation out of it. Exactly. And what I like about this too is that you, you're get, at least I got this feeling even before Harry points it out that like, uh, you know, while, uh, while Quirrell Dumbledore is arguing with uh, Aberforth in the mirror, and it's like, wait, destroy it? I don't know if it can be destroyed, or Master Flamel would have done it, and. Then like, uh, then all you hear is "Thank you, my brother." And then he's holding the stone, and then he's like, "No, no, I've got to go now. Be, be patient. I'll be with you guys, you know, uh, in truth soon enough." Wait, why? Why do I have to go? I I'm not sure. I was supposed to grab the stone uh, and, yeah. and and that's sort of just like the like why? Well, because Quirrell said I need to, but I can't say that. Right, and then so, yeah, it was like we're running into like the limits of the like artificial scenario we've set up. And then the, the other main thing is that Quirrell's model of Dumbledore is imperfect. Yeah. Where like he's, uh, he's standing there thinking, okay, yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he's arguing with Aberforth about the merits of, of uh, Flamel being immortal and stuff. And it's like, this isn't the kind of shit Dumbledore would be talking about. This is, this is Quirrell's bad imagining of Dumbledore. Yeah. And this is kind of how I imagine what it's like writing a story with characters that you've set up. And just sort of like, okay, let me like wind these people up and see where they go, where you 
then you run into like, well, wait, shit, if I've said this about this character and this about this other character, then they would run into this conflict. And that's kind of like how I see that the arguments between Harry and Dumbledore happened where like Yudkowsky has said, okay, Dumbledore is a person that thinks this and Harry is a person that thinks this. Now, without having decided myself how I think this argument is going to go, I'm going to have them start arguing with each other and see where it goes. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and I like that about that. Like those arguments ended in very sort of gray areas. Um, as kind of like an honest ending to, okay, well, how would this argument go? What I like about this too is I think this is the book – I guess other than a couple of other short stories or something, this is the most meta book I've ever read. And so this, this is one level above that. This is, all right, I've got a character who's imagining another character's state of mind, another, you know, character I've I've also written, but he's doing it incorrectly. How would that go out? And like, and not just not, I don't even know if he had to, I mean, he, he did for the story, but like, you know, Quirrell can't accurately model Dumbledore perfectly. And so he doesn't in the story. And like, just that level of like one more meta is, I, 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 I find titillating and enjoyable. Uh, well, and it's cool just as far as like, like this book as a, like, oh, we're just sort of exploring philosophical ideas. Like it's a kind of cool trust in your own. There's like, it's kind of a humble, like, I'm just going to surrender to the truth and I mean, yeah, this all does come out of like the same author's head, but like, I just got the impression, like he didn't know necessarily where that was going to go. And he was just kind of running with it as he went. And so it's kind of a, like a, like you get to see him, like, this is a way in which he's showing his work in that, like, I'm just going to like, let this go where it's going to go. And like, this isn't going to end in the place that I like predetermined decided it was going to go. I'm just going to like, you know, wind these ideas up, you know, let them fight it out. and you know, and see what happens. Right. If this was real, this is how it would pan out in my head. Yeah. And the other- so you still have to kind of trust it. Like, okay, yeah, this is still all how Yudkowsky thinks reality would, would run out. But at least I, I got the impression that, that it was a, like a good faith. Um, let me just play these things out and, and see how they go. And that, and that we did it like in that sense of like good faith, it did end up in places that weren't so kind of like conveniently one-sided. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. Um, then we get the moment where the confundus wears off he, and Harry sees Quirrell's expression change from, you know, his imagining expression of Dumbledore to becoming Quirrell again. And then in the same instant, the mirror changed, no longer showing Harry the reflection of the room, showing instead the room or the form of the real Albus Dumbledore as though he were standing just behind the mirror and visible through it. Dumbledore's face was set, was set and grim. Hello, Tom, said Albus Dumbledore. And so I just put in the notes, surprise, motherfucker, dot gif. <laughs> Is it a gif or a JPEG? It doesn't feel very, like... I'm thinking of, remember when Vine was briefly a thing? I do. So there was, uh, the, the line is from Dokes in season two of Dexter, when that show was briefly somewhat enjoyable. And he shows up at, when... Dexter's doing something murdery or whatever, and he's like, "Surprise, motherfucker!" And it's like, it's awesome and stressful. Surprise, motherfucker! Yeah, okay. So that's that's the, exactly the point I'm thinking of. Rue dies, motherfucker. Yeah, everything that rhymes with that. So um, that was also the description in the the audiobook episode was some version of that, but like, uh, surprise, like Muggle, not Muggle fucker, something like that. But anyway, so. Then so this is one of my yeah so yeah so this was our cliffhanger and then our our jump into the next chapter. This was my uh, I guess still big disconnect on what is actually happening here. Um, 
so yeah, so okay, Dumbledore on the other side, and he says like, okay, hello, Tom, and I guess this is sort of just triggered by, like, we just know if anybody, whoever got this far, it must be Tom. Um, well, other students but, got here. There's some specific Voldemort trick, and this was what was going to trigger Dumbledore showing up, I guess. But so, so what? I guess I still don't completely understand. So this is not some, you know, simulated Dumbledore. This is truly Dumbledore that he's talking to, and I guess. I get the impression that, but it's not just that like, Oh, Dumbledore somewhere else in the school, like the alarm tripped off and now he's jumped up over here, but that this is some like horcruxy splinter Dumbledore that has been inside the mirror the whole time. Is that. So that's, that's a good question. I want to get to that in a second. Cause there was the, right before that he says, well, before he says he's always been in the mirror, they talk about, uh, so Dumbledore shows up and he's like, hello, Tom. And then he's like bewildered for a second. And he's like, wait, queerness, what's going on? And yeah. well, I do feel stupid. I should hope so. And he says, there I am searching so hard for Voldemort's shade, never noticing that the defense professor of Hogwarts is a sickly half dead victim possessed by a spirit far more powerful than himself. I would call it senility if so many others had not missed it as well. That is like the second line in the in these two chapters where he's calling out like the first one's kind of like a ha fuck you audience. I know what 11 year old looks like. And this one is him saying, you know, yes, it's been super obvious that that Kroll is Voldemort. But, you know, so many people missed it that uh, he, I think that that's what he's calling. It. He's like, I'd call yeah, so, it. I was, so I was like, I mean, that that part bothered me a lot, too. But so because so I really want to think that there is some greater explanation other than Dumbledore's dumb for Dumbledore not noticing that Quirrell has been Voldemort the whole time, especially since, because have we already established or we're about to establish that? Oh, no, yeah, because the like, oh, did you think he was so stupid that he didn't notice that an 11-year-old is acting like a 60-year-old? Um, that, like, how did he notice that, but then not notice all of this, like, oh, you know what, this guy who's theoretically, you know, I mean, yes, powerful enough to be a teacher at, Hogwarts, which is pretty powerful still, but like, oh, this guy is demonstrating enough powers. Like his whole, like when, like, was it Harry? When, you know, somebody's falling, it seemed from like forever ago. Um, like Quirrell's able to just like completely knock out 200 students all at once, which to me, like, that's one of the things that sticks out is like the, like, oh, that's a conspicuously high level of power going on. But, but like that and other things that Quirrell's been displaying, like, like, alarmingly high levels of power this whole time and nobody's been noting it. And it seems like at this point, we're just, it, it sounds like Dumbledore is just saying like, Oh, dumb of me not to have noticed up to this point. Um, like that, if that's the story we're running with, I'm going to be pretty disappointed. Like I want there to be some sort of like, well, yes, I'm fucking Voldemort. And I just confuse the fuck out of you people to keep you from noticing how like ludicrously powerful this you know, Hogwarts teacher you think is here like, like, Oh, this Hogwarts teacher is, you know, clearly as powerful as Dumbledore um, and nobody's saying anything. Um, like I want there to be a better explanation other than, Oh, I guess I should have noticed. Yeah. I think that, I mean, there's a couple things with it. Like one is like, so I, I love the idea of like this passive gaslight power that just keeps you. Yeah. That, but I, God, hopefully, I wish we would acknowledge it because yeah, that totally works. And that's kind of an awesome idea. Like, Oh, I'm so powerful. I could just kind of make you become stupid. So um, I think, but it seems like that we're not not like, we're just sort of like chalking it up to, oh, I guess I didn't notice, which I'll be disappointed. Well, I think that 
if we if we look at it the other way, like you can kind of do that without magic, right? So that's that's sort of what Quarrel's done here. Like, I mean, so having a mysterious defense professor, like that shit just happens, it seems like, because uh, you know, defense professors come and go. They're 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 all weird in their own way. So like nobody after 50 years, you stop looking at it too closely. Like that's a bad reason, but like that's fine. I think Dumbledore assigns really low odds to the idea that Voldemort would take a paid position at Hogwarts and hang out there for nine months. So like he's not even that's not even on his radar. But the other thing, his his main thing here says that uh Quirrell says, you know, am I really that hard to recognize without the glowing red eyes? Oh yes indeed, your acting was perfect. I confess myself utterly deceived. Quirinus Quirrell seemed what is the term I'm looking for? Ah yes, that is the word. He seemed vain. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, like, and that seems weak. Like that, oh, like that's lame. like especially if we were going to call out like, okay, Dumbledore is canny enough to notice that this eleven-year-old is acting precocious and therefore must be Voldemort. Like if he's able to like jump from that amount of evidence to figuring out the right thing, like there's so much better evidence for okay, something is fucky with Quirrell. Maybe like not maybe not enough to to go from okay, he just showed a lot of power here, therefore he must be Voldemort, but. What it seems like Dumbledore is saying here is, oh, guess I was just fooled. Like there was way more, it was way more obvious that something's fucked up about Quirrell. Like not necessarily that you got to go to like, therefore he must be Voldemort, but it seems like he's not ever acknowledging like, yeah, I thought that was kind of weird and bizarre that you were that powerful about this thing. Well, like um, something like, oh, fucked up with defense professor has been the thing every year for the last fifty years, right? Yeah, that seems like such a like contrived little like. Oh, I guess it's just because he's the defense professor, and the world acts like we're all in a story. <laughs> um, I like think that's just especially because because uh, Quirrell does call out here, like, oh, there's been too many times where Dumbledore acting like the world is a story is just a part of these like hyper levels of him being able to kind of divine, you know. Like, like his divination abilities, like Dumbledore just knows shit about the nature of reality and then has played this, you know, like fourth dimensional chess around acting crazy. Like since we've now acknowledged that as a, just sort of a facet of Dumbledore's cleverness, like you can't chalk up this, uh, this kind of like kind of mad hatter idea of, Oh, the world is a story. And therefore anything weird Quirrell does is just because he's, you know, the, the defense against the dark arts professor, like that doesn't, doesn't work anymore. I don't know. I guess I'm, yeah, because it seems like he stands out so much. Like it's been so clear, not again, not necessarily that you got to jump to, and therefore he must be Voldemort. Um, only because like us as readers, like are already like one of the core puzzles to the whole story. I mean, even like, even if you don't know, this is a puzzle-ish kind of book being written like that's one of the things already set up from the from the rolling books is like okay who is voldemort like that's the main like the first four or five books of of harry potter are basically the same story told over and over again which is aha here's voldemort and now we defeat him um since we're already like primed for that we know that but okay even if the characters don't necessarily know that like um there was so much going on that even a character should have noticed as fucked up and weird that I, I just, I like, I want there to be a better explanation for it other than like, Oh, and therefore he's clever, you know, Coral's I, clever with the full people. I hear you. I think that like the, the deception underneath was like, of course I'm not queer in his quarrel. Like I'm way too powerful to be some 35 year old. No, in fact, I'm secretly David Monroe, the, you know, the bad guy or the, the hero that Voldemort feared. 
Um, so like that is the, if someone's looking for like, well, yeah, but I mean, who knows? Right. But I think that like that explains, uh, why professor McGonagall or something kind of gave up on the confusion about it because she's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. He's, he's David Monroe in disguise. And that would explain why he's super powerful. That would explain why he's mysterious about his background. Um, the, yeah. and like, with, yeah, I guess I'm, yeah, mostly just point because like we're setting up Dumbledore as, you know, canny enough to have figured out these, like, like Dumbledore is also playing eighth dimensional chess. And this one was to seem like of the other things that we've said that Dumbledore was able to figure out, this should have been like on that same level. And, and, and I guess like mostly because there was, it's such a, like, it would totally work. And it's like, so, like, so totally works. Like, like, like let's make this, this very sort of mysterious and non-specific Voldemort power that like, he can just kind of fuck with the nature of reality to get like even hyper smart people to be fooled, to just look the other way at things that should be obvious, but it doesn't seem like we're doing that. It's just like, I don't know. It's just sort of being played out as like, Oh, guess because you seemed sane. Um, and but he I think didn't t- he did not at all seem sane. He seemed like a psychopath the whole time, as long as you like looked, you know, past. The, as long as you scratched the surface, he seemed like a psychopath the whole time. He, he seemed like maybe a bit of a psychopath, but he wasn't the guy that was just torturing people for fun. Was you know skinning people alive and nailing them to the you know to the a newsroom wall, like all of the you know insane horrible things that Voldemort did. Quirrell seemed uh, you know a little fascist, but. <laughs> not 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 a not yeah. over the top insanely evil so like the 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 Voldemort that Dumbledore fought for a decade was the guy that like oh yeah I, I took your brother and I'm gonna ransom him for all your money and then when you refuse to do that I'm gonna send you the video of yeah, you know, me torturing yeah, to death and all this oh, yeah that level of like oh you couldn't have been able to tell that um that applies even more so to oh I have a precocious 11 year old like Harry acts way less like a psychopath than Quirrell does, but but Dumbledore was able to go. Okay, you know Harry is Harry is Vol- like Dumbledore has known. So now we're like learning. Dumbledore has known this whole time that Harry is a good Voldemort, but is a Voldemort. Like that's so much more subtle. Picking up on like being able to jump to that about okay, what is Harry? Then all of the you know clues being dropped about okay this quirrell dude is a, like psycho motherfucker like because he comes across as like okay I'm a psycho motherfucker pretending not to be a psycho motherfucker but like there's way like it's like the facade of what quirrell's trying to pretend to be is like much it's a lot more to try to hide and a lot less well hidden than okay Harry is a precocious person and therefore actually the spirit of an old man so maybe you know his I think his uh like his understanding that Harry was a little Voldemort, you know, maybe he had some other piece of information. Maybe he knew something we didn't know. Maybe it was part of the plan. Who knows about all that? But the, um, the Voldemort bit, I had something for this. I just, I'm losing my train of thought. Um, I mean, I guess he does know that like, I mean, you know that there's something up with the fact that like, why did this kid live? Like, so you know that something extraordinary had to happen, but. Yeah, there, there's something going on there, but I think the, uh, like, I think it was, I, I, I find it less disappointing the idea that that Dumbledore fought for ten years this crazy, insane, like not not merely evil, not merely dark, but just this this mad, uh, you know, off the walls, 
like, again, enjoying torturing people, not caring about the consequences, you know, like even Quirrell describes, like if somebody annoyed him, he just killed them and didn't worry about it, whether or not it was strategic. Like that was the insane person that Dumbledore was fighting for all these years. And Quirrell seems evil. He seems like careful of long-term planning. Well, yeah, but, but he's, it's not that like, oh, is, does Quirrell seem as evil as Voldemort was? It's, it's, is a person as crazy as Voldemort was capable of pretending to be a person as merely mostly evil as Quirrell is like, so it's not like, Oh, is this person as evil? It's like, is he within like the level of evil that an evil person could pretend to be? I think Dumbledore thinks that that Voldemort isn't capable of acting the least bit remotely human. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I mean, yeah. So I like this all works is like, okay, why would McGonagall be fooled? Right. If we've we've, given levels of like Voldemort's able to like, figure things out at a level. And especially if Voldemort's got this kind of supernatural ability to like figure out things that are going on and then like play this pretend to be crazy game. And then the red herring. In the same, in the same season we've, we've given like we're attributing all of this, like levels of skill and figuring things out to Dumbledore. And then at the same time saying, Oh, guess he was fooled. seems I was, I was disappointed. I understand. I, I wasn't, but I, I can see where you're coming from. I think that, you know, it's it's like, I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, there, there's not a good parallel that is imaginable in real life because there aren't really Voldemort-like characters. But it's like, I don't know, I mean, just the the idea that, oh, yeah, I spent a decade fighting this this crazy guy that would skin children alive and do all this insane shit. And now, a decade later, I have no reason to think that that guy would, you know, take a paid job at my school so I don't, I'm not looking for him in one of these people. Yeah, I've got this weird defense professor, but they've all been weird. And, and this guy's evil, but you know, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's sane. He's, he's calculating. He's, uh, he's patient. He, you know, he, he has all these qualities that I've never observed in Voldemort. And so like, I think it's just that none of his, of Dumbledore's mental model of Voldemort mapped up with Coral at all. Um, other than the fact that Coral is vaguely darkish, right? Um, he's not on the face of it, obviously evil to everybody. He's, he's, uh, you know, even like, um, Neville's grandma liked his fascism speech. Right. So like, even that wasn't super off putting to everybody on the light side of the force. Um, I I hear what you're saying though, but I do like, uh, but now what, what do we think about what Dumbledore thinks about how 1981, panned out Dumbledore has been this whole time thinking that the real Voldemort somewhere is still never died and is still alive. That wasn't like new news to him. He's been thinking that the whole time. Right. So, yeah. So he both thinks that like, okay, Harry is some proto Voldemort and the real Voldemort never died. Like that's, that's the theory Dumbledore has been running on this whole time. He believed that, when he sent, uh, when he allowed the events of Godric's Hollow to unfold, that that Voldemort would be banished for some years, um, yeah, but that it wouldn't so, kill him. Right, he knew he knew it wouldn't kill him because of his Horcruxes. That's where I love this line because Dumbledore is just not, you know, it, it's great seeing him do the like the very serious badass. Like everything he says here is like that. He says, "You refused death, and if I destroyed your body, your spirit would only wander back like a dumb animal that cannot understand it's being sent away." Uh like he, he doesn't he doesn't sugarcoat it. He he's like, "Yeah, you're, you know, your 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 spirit is this stupid animal and you don't you're, it's too dumb to get that it's no longer wanted here." Like yeah. I, I love yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that the kid gloves. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, like and right before that he says like 
um, like, oh yeah, you, you say that Voldemort was some like kind of character you were portraying, but, uh, his quote is anybody who can bring himself to act the part of Voldemort is Voldemort. Um, and then, uh, and then Quirrell responds to that with, with something like, oh, you know, I know all of you moralists have, you know, these simplistic ideas of what, uh, you know, that there are these things called good and there are these things called evil and that I am the thing you would call evil. And he's trying to sort of like rise above these merely mortal, you know, understandings of, of good and evil. But maybe I was going to be some like new and interesting version of evil that you've never seen before. And uh, Dumbledore just kind of like bats it down. He's like, you know what? I find that I just don't give a shit. Like what I say, I, find, I didn't pull that quote, but like, I find that I don't care. Right. I fucking um, and I sort of yeah and it, yeah I kind of had this sort of like finality of like yeah you sort of like mind fucked yourself into like in the you know saying that like this might be important but like just shut up yeah exactly it's like oh maybe, you know maybe you're interestingly different kind of evil than I thought you know what I I really don't care about that whatever you are you're Voldemort and that's all I give a shit about um and then like, like, yeah you you've got this like whole like complex little you know set of thoughts to try to justify what you're doing but I'm I'm just not gonna play like. You're fucking Voldemort. <laughs> right. Oh, and so then here's where we get to the question that I pinned earlier, where he says, uh, he, he said, Quirrell says, then you must think yourself to be rid of me very soon. How interesting. My immortal existence must depend on discovering what trap you have set and finding a way to escape from it as soon as possible. But let us pointlessly delay and talk of other matters. <laughs> I know, it's totally like a James Bond scene. He says, how did you come to be waiting inside the mirror? I thought you'd be elsewhere. He says, I am there, and I'm also inside the mirror. Unfortunately for you, I have always been here all along. So that that was a question of like, yeah. what the hell? So I I don't know exactly what that means. I have a couple of guesses, but you're welcome to to guess. So where. yeah, and this is the part I didn't get. So it seems like we're saying more than just that, like, like, oh, this set off some alarm and now Dumbledore knows to like suddenly appear inside the mirror. And besides, like, what would that mean anyway? So that I guess my idea is that like Dumbledore's like you know, you know, I'm not that we're like bringing up Horcrux into it, but they're like Dumbledore, like split off some portion of himself that has been forever, just waiting inside the mirror for Tom Riddle to show up. Um, there and is, that, that there was some is a way story. in the story that we've established to do that without Horcruxes. Yeah. But, but yeah, so that I guess it was, but that like, it's not that, that that was like some sort of like sacrifice Dumbledore decided to make that he was going to surrender some part of himself to live forever inside of this alternate universe, just to guard against the possibility that, uh, that Tom Riddle might come in and try to take the stone. So that's, um, my, that's my second favorite uh, hypothesis for how Dumbledore is inside the mirror. My, my first one is that the real Dumbledore is just found, you know, whatever magic he needed to do to be inside the mirror all the time. And the times that he's not in the mirror is the time-turned version of himself out doing school stuff and going to Azkaban and doing all the shit he had to do. Oh, they're like, oh, when you, whenever you don't see Dumbledore, it's because he's sitting inside the mirror? Right. So he can simultaneously be in all those places just because he's inside the mirror at all the times he needs to be. I think that – so my – I you know, maybe we'll get – full clarification on this someday, but my favorite idea here is that Dumbledore spends 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sitting inside the mirror, waiting for Voldemort to show up. The other times that we see him having dinner at the head table, talking with Harry in his office, when he goes to ask a man to try and stop Bellatrix Black, that is him using his extra six hours a day from his time turner to go do other things that aren't inside the mirror. So he's just like correcting papers while he's inside the mirror. I get the feeling that McGonagall does all the actual paperwork. Answering email. That, answering email, quick papers, right. you know, whatever. 
Dumbledore does all the important stuff, you know, when he when he uses his extra six hours, and I'm not sure when he sleeps. Maybe a Voldemort alarm would actually wake him up if he's sleeping inside the mirror. But given that the mirror is this insanely magical, powerful artifact that confusingly can create universes and apparently store things from our universe, including people, it's not clear to me if my uh my favorite guess is the right one, but it's just the funniest to think about. <laughs> like he, he misses a lot of dinners because, well, I already used up my six hours doing other stuff. So I'm, I got to spend my, I got to spend my gotta 24 hours in the mirror. <laughs> back to the mirror. All right. Okay. So but then this is, so then my other major point of confusion, they talk about like, Oh, the fact that you killed Flamel. Did we, and again, like stuff I get lost between not remembering what I remember for the books or from here had, did we already have it established that Flamel had been killed at some point? No. Um, Cor- or, uh, Snape says that there has been a distraction, and that's why he's guarding the third floor corridor. Uh, okay. But that's so all we, we, we didn't like walk. We didn't walk into this scene having it already established that Flamel was dead. No, that is a surprise bombshell here. So that was that was a big. And so he says, like, oh, and because Dumbledore loses his shit at the idea, like, oh, you killed Flamel merely as a distraction. And that was my, like, at reading that, I'm like, wait, what? Flamel's dead? And I didn't know, like, oh, did we already know that? And now what? Or is that? So I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't sure if, like, oh, this is news that we're learning for the first time. That was was news that we're learning. In canon, what happens is Flamel decides that having the stone around is too dangerous and decides just to die. You know, not deathist at all, of course, because obviously that's a made up thing. But uh, that is what Flamel decides to do. Get me started on your war on Christmas. I won't. But that is, that is what Flamel decides to do was uh, Grinch Christmas. I'm not exactly sure how that analogy, but anyway, um, in canon, Flamel just decides to die um, and, and break and destroy the stone. And this one, uh, then of course, Quirrell's like, I'm wounded by the injustice of your accusation. I did not kill the one you know as Flamel. I simply commanded another to do so. <laughs> um, so, but okay. So then what we're saying though, then, with this information is that he, that Coral had Flamel killed as a way to trigger getting the stone to be stored in the mirror here in, in Hogwarts so that it became accessible to him. No, I think he killed Flam- or he had Flamel killed just to distract Dumbledore. He figured that, Hey, you know what? The most, one of the most important figures in the world is assassinated. That'll call Dumbledore's attention. Kind of like, kinda- yeah, just to, just to point the eye of Sauron in this case, Dumbledore being Sauron elsewhere while I go poke at the mirror. Right. I, th- right. I, I think that's what he was doing. I, I don't think it was about uh, like the. I think the stone has been inside the mirror the whole time. I think that the idea, the, the the like, let's start a fire over here so the police are all busy. I think that was what he was doing when he was going to go rob this bank, right? Okay. So then we get to the point where so we just dis- discover that, and by the time we're here talking to, even before we started this chapter, by the time we're talking to Dumbledore here, Quirrell's got the stone in his hand. Um, and, and while while he was still confundus distist, um, as as a Dumbledore, he kept feeling the need to go shoot the shit with his dead relatives, and then but then when it wore off, he was then going to be ready to just like walk out of there with a stone, and then Dumbledore shows up, and then after this more James Bondy, I expect you to die, Mister Bond. Hmm. Um, he's now like, okay, fuck you, I'm done with you, and he tries to walk off, and then that's when he finds he's like, oh wait, shit. I am trapped by the mirror. I cannot walk away from my reflection because magic. Um, 
And then that, and so then we sort of figure out like that was going to be, that was the big plan from Dumbledore for the mirror was, um, yes, um, Quirrell would be, or Voldemort would be trapped, uh, would be able to get, get it out. Or even if he did, like if Voldemort shows up here, then Dumbledore would be able to banish him into this other, like land outside of time inside the mirror forever. Like, yeah, okay. I can't kill you, but, uh, you and the stone are going to be trapped safely on the other side of this mirror forever. And maybe Harry will come and get you someday later, but whatevs. Um, and then, so then this is the, the part I totally didn't understand. So what, and then what Voldemort goes, ha ha ha, you fool. I've had Harry here in the mirror all this time. And then he rips off Harry's invisibility cloak. And I guess reading this again, I thought then I is, and he puts the invisibility cloak on himself. And is that the secret trick? The, the, the part I'm super confused by was, okay, Dumbledore and apparently not like ghost of Dumbledore, but a real Dumbledore inside the mirror knows that he has Voldemort trapped inside the mirror and can't go anywhere. And that, and then surprise to Dumbledore is that Voldemort says, oh, by the way, Harry's trapped in here too. And then Voldemort lets them go, which again, that wasn't like completely obvious on first read that that's what he did by just kind of like throwing shit out of his hands. But oh, Dumbledore lets them go, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, that like, why? Well, because it seemed to me like at that moment, like Dumbledore knows he's won the game. Like, okay, I have Voldemort trapped inside the mirror forever and there's nothing he can do about it right now. Um, and that like the only choice Dumbledore was faced with was um, like the surprise that Voldemort springs on him is, Oh, by the way, Harry's in here too. But then the choice at that point for Dumbledore is shitty, but seems like he's made different, you know, he's made worse decisions in the past was okay. In order to trap Voldemort in the mirror forever, I have to also trap Harry Potter in the mirror forever. But the only reason Dumbledore went to all the trouble of creating a Harry Potter in the first place was to fight out Voldemort. So like, it seems like Voldemort at this point is faced with the choice of, uh, what did I say? Dumbledore is faced at the choice of, uh, trap Voldemort in the mirror forever, but we lose Harry Potter and he's also trapped in the mirror forever or let them both go. Like I would think like, well, okay, that sucks that we're going to lose Harry Potter, but we don't need Harry Potter anymore. Like his goal was in order to solve the whole Voldemort problem and so- problem now solved. So it's terrible. And Harry has to, you know, sacrifice himself and stay trapped in a mirror forever. But by the way, that's not going to feel terrible because it's going to feel like an instant anyway. But like, it didn't seem like like Dumbledore would just say, okay, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Let's just keep them both trapped in here. And now the world is safe from Voldemort. Um, I see why you're But that he just decides to let him go. Or yeah, was that, I guess now in saying it again, it seems like that, oh, maybe the key was that, okay, Voldemort ripped the the cloak off of Harry and put it on himself so that now it's only Harry trapped and not Quirrell slash Voldemort. But that doesn't that doesn't right. work either. That that is, I think, what it is. So it's it's not that Harry and Double or Harry and Quirrell are now in the mirror. They're still in the room. Dumbledore is in the mirror, and he's going to banish everything on the other side, which includes uh, the invisible Harry, and or rather, it includes Harry or well, whatever. Uh, so Dumbledore is in the mirror. He's going to banish everything that the mirror is reflecting to outside time. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, only Quirrell slash Voldemort is being reflected. And so he's like, yeah, I'm going to banish you to, you know, somewhere else. Uh, looks like looks like the boy who lived off to find a new um, 
you know, a new or a new Dark Lord to vanquish since you're not going to be here, um, which is all badass. There's another badass line where uh, he's like pointing out to or Quirrell's pointing out to Dumbledore. He's like, yeah, you know, I tried to be nice and, you know, it's, it's kind of your fault because you wouldn't let me train at Flamel. And he says, I decline. I do not accept a teeniest shred of responsibility for what you've become. Um, I just like how he, Dumbledore, again, everything he says is badass. Um, so he says, uh, um, I, I'm going to get to your question, but I want to read the rest of this too. He says, oh, and so, you know, you let your unwitting pawns, James and Lily Potter, uh, go to their death at the hands of you-know-who. And he's like, you know, they would have done it willingly. Um, and and the little baby, you know, I doubt the Potters would have been so eager to leave him in the path of Voldemort. And uh, He says, well, you know, the boy you lived came out of it well enough. Tried to turn them into you, did you? And instead he turned yourself into a corpse and Harry Potter became the wizard you should have been. Um, yeah, and so I guess that'd be like, so Dumbledore didn't know that that's how it was going to play out. That's what I was no. wondering for a second. Like, oh, maybe he knew this whole like Harry Potter as Voldemort thing was how it was going to play out. But he didn't know that going in. I think he knew that. He says, how I laughed when I found out. Um, yeah. So if you if you recall, when Harry goes in there after his potions lesson and is, is blackmailing, he's like, I'm going to start a newspaper, newspaper campaign against you and Snape and we're going to solve all of this. And it's like, okay, fine. If we don't put you in detention, will that fix it? He's like, no, it's for all the other students. I, I'll be fine no matter what. Dumbledore has this like insane laughing fit with tears rolling down his face and banging on his desk. And Harry asks, like, does he need to take his medicine? I think that's when he realized that, oh, I made a nice Tom Riddle. Um, oh, that's, that's, that's the point oh, that he realizes. Like, yeah. oh, this is- he's like, oh, he's using all of his icy brilliance, but he's using it to defend his friends. Like, oh, this is fucking hilarious. Oh, man. Um, so, uh, so anyway. So when, does, so when Dumbledore decides, like, does all of this eyes wide open in 1981 or whenever that was, um, what Dumbledore thinks is going to happen is like, okay, yeah, I am sending these people to their deaths merely on the assumption that they would be okay with it if I told them up front. But that what he thinks is that, okay, this is that he thought Voldemort was going to die that night and it didn't turn out that way, but that's what he thought he was doing. I think he, I think he knew that he was banishing Voldemort, like that he was merely banishing him for a few years. He knew about his horcruxes. He knew he'd be back, but he's like, you know what? Stopping this war for 10 years is worth the lives of two people. Um, and he, and he somehow knew because it it is a little gray, but it's, you know, that that works. It's it's hard to, it's hard to argue against it. You know, more people would die if the war went on for 10 more years, you know, the math checks out, but it, it, again, that's the thing is it's, yeah, it's, it's it's not a, it's not a a clean decision. Right. It's a, it's a dirty one, but it's the right one probably. Right. But it's, uh, so, um, as far as the mirror business, like, so whatever's being reflected in the mirror is going to be banished to well, just outside time, whatever that means. And then when uh, <laughs> Voldemort says, no, you know, I've got, that's pretty silly. Cause I know you can, you can turn the effect around. Cause he names, you know, some obscure lore about how I've heard of this mm-hmm. thing. And, and he's like, why would I turn it around? And he's like, going to tell me you have hostages. You're, you're, you're an utter fool, Tom. You should know. I would not give you anything for any hostages. And he says, Oh, allow me to introduce you to my hostage. And that's when he rips the cloak off of Harry and puts it on. And he says, ah, would you look at that? I don't appear to have a reflection anymore. And so what's going to happen if, if Dumbledore goes through with this, only Harry Potter will be banished because only he's being reflected or he can turn around and banish himself. And so that's so where the decision at, comes at from. It's moment, like, you're right. At that, moment, kind of- at that moment when Quirrell puts the cloak on, he could just walk away. Yeah. And so um, I think also, like, even if the spell were to go through or whatever, it's only going to banish the stuff that's reflected. And so, 
since the the cloak can defeat the mirror in the sense that it can't reflect the cloak, then the, then he's hidden. Um, so okay, so I thought about that then, but if, so if that's the case, then Quirrell doesn't need Harry; he just needs an invisibility. He needs the invisibility cloak. Uh, like he, Quirrell could have done. I guess Quirrell didn't know that the whole like, oh, let me convince myself into being Dumbledore trick would have worked. But like, if Quirrell just shows up. Just him and the invisibility cloak. He could walk up to the mirror. Let me pretend to be Dumbledore. I'll get the, the stone. Dumbledore will show up and say, ha ha, have you trapped? No, I'll just put the cloak on and walk away. I don't think he knew what the nature of the trap would be until it kicked off. Like, I don't think he knew it would be Chang's, it, it, you know, exactly. reversal but, or whatever. But I guess like, but, but as it turns out, like Harry's not essential to this whole plan. Really a... An invisibility cloak is all it takes to get the stone. I think maybe, uh, like other than the idea that, you know, the confunding myself into Dumbledore sort of thing, but, and it has to probably be the cloak, not just any cloak because the cloak is special, yeah. but I mean, getting that would be sort of trivial. He's been, and I think, I think he has actually, hasn't he? He's been able to like get the cloak away from Harry at some point. Uh, that's, that's a solvable problem. Even if he couldn't. Yeah, like, I don't know if he has or not, but yeah, that's super doable. I mean, he could probably even just ask Harry and Harry would have done oh, it. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I want yeah, to say at some point we've had that presented so, as a possibility. Exactly. And the other thing was, uh, like, I mean, it's not clear, but once... So he sees Harry Potter there, and he's staggered as though some essential support had been, been removed from him. Yeah. And then he's, like, I I don't think that don't, that he would have reversed it and sacrificed himself to save Ron Weasley here. Um, yeah. Not throwing bricks at Ron, but like, it doesn't like, so it's not like, but so that wasn't the Dumbledore wasn't sitting there having to choose between let me solve the, the Voldemort problem or let me let, you know, Harry live or quote, you know, whatever, let me let Harry continue to be a person in this universe. It was but at the point that Quirrell covers himself in the invisibility cloak. Now Dumbledore has lost the ability to, so it's, it's not really so much that like, oh, wait, Harry was here and you didn't know it was, oh, wait, I've got an invisibility cloak. I think that's it. Yeah. And I, I wonder, like, he seems particularly incentivized to not let Harry Potter in particular die, but, but I guess like, that's not, matter. Like you said. I guess like up until like, until the moment that Quirrell like threw it. Uh, yeah. I guess the, yeah, but it's, it's cause he says it at like the reveal is, Oh, Harry's been here the whole time, but it seems like, I don't know. It seems like there's a disconnect here that it's not, it's not the important point is not that Harry's there. It's that if I put on this invisibility cloak, you can't trap me here anymore. I think that's it. Yeah, I don't think that Dumbledore. How it seems to be described. It doesn't seem to describe described that way. I think it it kind of is, but I think there's the other thing that I think too that Dumbledore wouldn't sacrifice himself for any any random student. I think that he would have sac you know because then you know with Dumbledore off the playing field, then Voldemort is still around, and yeah, the student hostage survives. Like you know, my my trapping spell doesn't work, but then it just goes off and doesn't catch anybody, or it catches this poor random student. I think the fact that oh, Harry Potter- because at that so at that moment that they're in there, uh, except Dumbledore's been in there the whole time. So his choice is either so somebody on one side of this mirror is going to be trapped in the mirror forever. So it's either me or Harry Potter. It's going to so, be, be trapped outside time, which seems even more uh, trapped than just inside the mirror. Yeah, but Dumbledore was. But I guess we're kind of thinking Dumbledore's been was already trapped in here. So I think like he's been he's been like waiting here the whole time just in case. I think trapped is not exactly what Dumbledore is doing in there. I think oh, yeah, he's back and forth, but I think he's just been in there. So I think I think the whole banished outside time is not the same thing as being trapped in the mirror. 
I think it's a particular thing. Um, okay. But it sounds like, though, that Dumbledore is not here faced with some kind of horrible choice that he's got to make. It's not that he's got some horrible choice that he's got to make and he's just decided to to not sacrifice Harry Potter. It's just that he's gotten fucked out of his – like his trap does not work. Right. Exactly. He's I think that – like, oh, got to let Voldemort go because it didn't work because now he's inside an invisibility cloak. Yeah, I guess there's a disconnect because it seems like, oh, the like the big aha here is – uh, Harry Potter's here and you didn't know, but it seems like the fact that it's Harry isn't the key issue. It's that there's an invisibility cloak. I think it's a little column A, a little column B, but it's definitely the invisibility cloak. The fact that like, hey, my trap goes off, it doesn't even catch Voldemort. So this isn't even a fact like, do I sacrifice a student to stop Voldemort too? Because you know he's shown himself to be willing to make the hard call to say, I'm willing to sacrifice people to stop Voldemort. Like this is the fact like, okay, great. Do I now sacrifice myself or do I sacrifice Harry Potter, who's been, you know, predestined to stop Voldemort? Um, well, so like, like, there isn't even a sacrifice to be made anymore. It's like, oh shit! Like Voldemort can now escape. So, oh well. Exactly. So, so now the only it's thing not, that he can do even, like, is it's not, like, it's not a sacrifice that he's deciding whether or not to make. There's no sacrifice to make. Like Voldemort escaped. Well, so, yeah, but somebody has to be sacrificed, either him or or Harry Potter. Because well, now, because the, now he that was, the, like either. Because he was already there, like he's either was already trapped the whole time, or he's not trapped at all. I don't think he, I don't think Dumbledore is trapped in there. I think he's he's inside the mirror, not in the mysterious place outside time. So I think that uh, the the thing is one half of one half of the reflection, either the half containing Dumbledore or the half containing the the room, is going to be banished. And so that's the that's the decision Dumbledore has to make: Do I sacrifice Harry Potter and let myself live to keep trying to fight Voldemort? Or do I let Harry Potter live and sacrifice myself? Because oh, now the okay. the springs on this trap That's are too tight. And it's going to go off one way or another. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 So, okay. So that's the, okay. Voldemort's definitely escaped because he's inside the invisibility cloak. And now it's either me or Harry that has to be trapped. And so I'm going to make sure to let Harry go because he's the one, that, he's the only person I get to be the Voldemort. So, I, okay. So I guess it's sort of like established that like some, for some reason, the trap has been sprung and somebody's got to be sent off to never, never land. Yeah. For, for awesome plot stop. stress reasons, the, the trap has a slow buildup and then it's unstoppable once it gets to a point high that's enough. Fun. And that's when oh, we're all okay. And that was like, okay. And because, and because Dumbledore is waiting there the whole time now that he thinks, okay, I've got Voldemort standing in front of it. I'm going to set off the trap. Um, exactly. So, so, okay, so the trap has been, the trap's been set off. Somebody's going to go, but Dumbledore still has the, ability to choose which side goes. And so then his choice is, okay, we'll either let Harry go or let myself go. All right. I'm all caught up. It is. Uh, that's the part. Yeah. See, and that was like, okay, it shouldn't have been this hard to like decipher. <laughs> I, I, somebody's going to complain about reading comprehension or something, but I do think, I do agree. It is a convoluted well, okay, yeah. situation. Okay. And I, I, I think I it, it's, it's moderately intelligent human being. And you can read. I think that it's. I think it's fair to be somewhat confused by what happened here. Um, like, I think the key insight is that if you're not reflected by the mirror, the spell wasn't going to work on you. That was the piece that didn't ex- yeah. like wasn't uh, explicit enough. I think to make that clear, that's what was going on. The only other thing that happens is that before Dumbledore is vanished, very sadly, he throws aside his wand and the uh, the little stone rod that he used at the uh, Wizengam at the what is that? The line of Merlin unbroken. Um, oh, is that like his, his scepter of symbolic power? Okay. That part I didn't get either then. 
Yeah, so it just it's it's one quick sentence. It says that he whips them into both of his hands, then throws them outside, like outside of his cone of visions. They're not in the mirror, so I'm not sure where they go. But those those artifacts survive, and that, yeah. So then it ends with uh, the mirror being empty and uh, no with no trace of where the obelisk Dumbledore had been. Very sad stuff. And then we get to a chapter. Yeah, and then the next now we're in like full like Voldemort has completely ripped the the cover off and now he's just in full Voldemort mode. It's interesting, like I don't really want to call him Voldemort because I guess I do now understand like the idea of Voldemort as merely this one sort of like lame two-dimensional, you know, mustache twirling evil dude that Quirrell has uh, been putting on. Like I still want to think of him as Quirrell. I mean, even though I guess I guess technically Tom Riddle's the way to look at him, but like the, all of the like gravitas around the pure evil that this dude is, is like hung up in the idea of Quirrell. Yeah. There's lots of names to throw around and lots of identities that Quirrell yeah, has. But like if I want to like sort of like capture the, the the full psychotic evil that the dude is like that Quirrell is the name I want to attach to that and not Voldemort or Tom Riddle. And this chapter is quite appropriately called failure. 11-1. 11-1, failure. failure. Yeah. Now this feels like this is completely like, we're in full Voldemort mode. It's awesome. Um, and this yeah, is not, my, yeah, like not only is the mask been ripped off, but like, and now he's got like, we are in the worst case scenario of like Voldemort has now achieved his evil plan. He's fully powerful and capable of becoming immortal. And he's laughing maniacally, which I've got to point out. This is my obligatory for this episode. Check out the audiobook. Uh, if Enosh ever decides to become a dark Lord, he won't have to practice his evil laugh at all. Um, he it's it's awesome he like plays it in the background as he's reading what's happening it's really funny and fun um and this this whole thing is great because it says like harry's mind was disarrayed his eyes kept staring where dumbledore had been the horror was in him was too huge for understanding or reflection his mind kept trying to fall back through time to undo reality and so like this whole sense of like disarray and horror kind of just goes on for like the next half this chapter like yeah Everything's happening so fast. He's like, okay, great. It very much had this like this like frantic, fast pace of like, okay, we're you know we're just gonna like walk out of Hogwarts now. Exactly. And he's like, like wait, okay, what do you mean? He's just entirely. sadly shuffling along behind him, and um, it's just uh, like it's got sort of like a very like Dungeons and Dragons feel. Like, okay, now we're just gonna sort of extract ourselves from the like you know dungeon part. Okay, we'll just fly out. Like, we're getting out from underground. We're gonna walk out of the school. Like we're just abandoning this whole, this whole scene is now going to fade back. Skyrim has this mechanic basically in every dungeon where it takes a long time to get, or it takes whatever time to get through to the back of the dungeon to get the loot. But then there's always a shortcut back to the front of the dungeon. Mm-hmm. And it, it just kind of feels like, yeah, yep, we did the whole quest thing. And now we're going to just walk on out of here. And he says in parcel tongue, he's like, yep, you helped me indeed. So now it's time to resurrect your girl child friend to keep promise. And yeah, and it keeps thinking this is like more a, a critique of the original books that uh, so it it faithfully keep keeps sticking back to the 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 phrase of describing Voldemort's voice as high and cold, um, which they sort of tried to reproduce a little bit uh, in the movies, which again completely doesn't work with Ray Fine as as the person trying to do that. But like, I guess he's supposed to be kind of, but like. In trying to sort of like capture like the menace of what a Voldemort is and the, you know, hyper powerful person that he is, this 
it sounds good as far as two words to stick together of high and cold, but if you ever try to actually play in your head, you know, let me, let me try to, you know, put some sort of high pitched whispery, whatever to these words that are getting said that like never worked for me. So my, like my brain always kind of had a little disconnect there of trying to, I would basically sort of fall back. To now me, I get to assign like, you to try to. I'll go back and listen to Eni. Like I bet Eniash does a better job of it because it probably doesn't sound like hey, 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 hey. probably does sound like which is a way better. Like you kind of need something that sounds a little more powerful and like high and cold sounds sort of menacing, but it doesn't sound like powerful. It sounds kind of sort of effete. Yeah. Well, so so Eniash does Quirrell's voice, uh, but he he has uh, this awesome guy. Uh, I think the attribution is Alexander Jackson. I think that's the guy's name because he gives him at the end of every episode. Um, does Voldemort's voice when he changes bodies. And that voice is amazing. I think it's exactly what we're looking for with, it's not exactly high, but it's, it's got this kind of lilt to it that, I mean, I can't describe it. Just, just listen to the first, you know, paragraph of, you know, whenever he starts talking and it's, it's fucking perfect. Like they should have, they should have had him. There's kind of a a cost between, like that idea of high and cold works well. And you could, I can totally like picture it. It does a good job of like, like I can hear a, there's a sound I hear for that voice with that description. So that part of it works really well. And that sound works really well as far as sounding like creepy and inhuman uh, and just kind of unnatural, but it doesn't, but what takes away from that is you don't associate with that vibe, or at least I don't associate with that, the sense of sort of like, superpower like that's a that's a sick creepy kind of golemy kind of a weirdo but right. not that's not a voice that can work for and also the most powerful wizard on the planet it works like for golem sort of but not for sauron yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah. yeah you need like a deep something or yeah you need some kind of oh ha, ha, or something yeah that because it does it does work as like this you know broken psycho thing it, it captures that but like that comes at the cost of like of powerfulness to it because you don't like yeah you don't regard a golem as you know threateningly powerful you just just go like psycho and completely w- willing to like eat your ear but not you know you could still defeat them as long as you know like no <laughs> as, as long as you have fair warning yeah when uh when Inyash did the casting call, when it became apparent that Voldemort would have more lines, because I did the one for like the flashback scene um, when Harry gets his memory of his parents being killed. And I was never thrilled with it, but, you know, it was just a few words and it was whatever. Um, but yeah, when when it, when Voldemort got more lines, he put out a casting call and, he, and I think Inyash said something along the lines of, Getting something to sound high and cold and also good turns out to be really hard. So I know, right? Yeah, and people, I think, people send me yeah, some I think samples. You can blame rolling for that. It like sounds good, but it doesn't work. I think that's Rowling's fault. And I and like Yudkowsky, like because it was it's like a conspicuous phrase that Rowling used over and over again. So like Yudkowsky was right to reproduce it, but I think like it's it just doesn't work. Like, which is why they didn't do it for the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but well, I think they sort of kind of they tried to make. Ray, Ray Fine is like an awesome actor. I really like him. Uh, and he was like cool as that Voldemort. But yeah, I uh, also in trying to sort of like stay faithful to that depiction, it kind of, yeah, it just kind of doesn't work. They shouldn't have tried to go that way. But, the only things I can remember him saying was the, uh, like the awkward scene at the end of the seventh or the eighth movie where he like gives Draco a hug or something. Like, and he doesn't have a high voice there. He just sounds like a whispering, deep voiced yeah. man. Yeah, there's something like that. Oh, I 
massive is a- which is a little sort of like Hannibal Lecter kind of a thing, which kind of works. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm Hannibal's sure. got – it's a deep tenor, but he talks, yeah, in a high-ish – I don't know, whatever it is. But the voice isn't really the most important part of what's going on here. The most, the most important part of what's going on here is that they're going to just, you know, get the fuck out of Hogwarts. Oh, on the way out, he does some mind fuckery spell to Snape. Um, oh, yeah. And he says – It's really creepy. Yeah. And then he says, you know, uh, that he, he – yeah, something, something, uh, I'm sure I, I, someone pointed out this is a reference to something, but I can't remember what it was, but yes, yeah, Dave says, Hey, you guys have to leave or I'll start deducting house points. And then he says, Hayakuju Montauk. And then Snape oh, yeah. staggers and then lifelessly draws himself back up beside the door. And he's like, what did you do? And he's like, Oh, just fulfilling my obligation to my faithful servant. I shall not kill him as I promised you, but like, no doubt, whatever you just did was fucked up. Yes. That's so, so cool. That's why, again, when we're talking about you know making promises and wish machines, saying don't kill him, it's like, yeah, you got it, dude. There's lots of worse yeah. things I can do than killing him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's super monkey paw. Do not kill or otherwise torture these people, please, <laughs> or allow them to be killed or tortured. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he also like only promised for like a week or something, didn't he? Like, yeah. Yeah. His lawyers were thoroughly happy without it. And, okay. <laughs> and then there's some girl that they bump into that I don't know if is an OG Harry, Car- Harry Potter character or not. It was, a, it was a specific enough name that I I thought it was it was a reference to something and possibly just a real human with a an attachment so, to yeah any Ash Brodsky level of attachment to the author. Well, so a lot of the cameo names are people that did fan art. Um, so Claudia Alicia Tabor might have been uh, one or more fan artists, and they just smashed their names together, but. Uh, I like how he talks to her. He says that name and he says, I command you thus, take this canut to the spell circle I showed you beneath the Quidditch stand and put it in the center. Then oblivion yourself over the last six hours. And she says, yes, Lord. And, and I don't know if she's... Like, defuse the bomb order. Exactly. But I like, it's not clear whether... I, I'm assuming that she's somehow mind me, that she's not just some new death yeah. eater or something. But yeah. Um, and she says, I thought you needed the stone. And he's like, I didn't say I needed the stone. I just thought I'd stop at the bomb if I got if I got yeah, the stone. That, you yeah. fucking idiot. Does, you you didn't bring enough lawyers. Like, <laughs> I know, exactly. Yeah, it does set up this kind of whole like, oh, now we have to like question everything we've heard up to this point. Like you'll you you know, your memory was never gonna be good enough to like try to track, you know, which things did you hear in parcel tongue versus which things you heard in English. Which, you know, smugly, as I say, as a person that speaks another foreign language, it is hard to like try to remember like what language did I hear that in? Like and that's what your brain, your brain sort of like files everything under like a common non-actual language version of the thing you heard. And then like when you try to recall it later, you translate it in, into a language, but it wasn't actually stored that way. What are the languages you speak? Uh, just Spanish, a little bit of the other languages, but, but yeah, like stuff that you remember in a, in a foreign language, like your brain doesn't quite like store things like specific to the language that like you understand things, you'd like pick them apart and, and like come at the meaning of them. And then your brain puts them away that way. And then when you try to like recall them later, you will then retranslate it into whatever like language you need to be saying that in. But like, that wasn't how it was put away. So if like, I could totally get like, if Harry's trying to remember, wait, shit, did he say that in parcel tongue? Or did he, did he say that in English? Like he wouldn't be able to remember. He'd be like, Oh fuck. I, I can't remember which way he said it like you could remember sort of like the conscious recollection of oh i'm remembering right now that he said that in parcel tongue therefore it must be true but if he wasn't trying to like keep track of it in the moment like just remembering the thing that was said right he, he keeps the compiled be, version saved somewhere but not the exactly yeah. yes yes it's been it's already been like optimized for the 
a local processor. Right. And, <laughs> and what's fun about that too, is that, you know, I, I made sure to do this in subsequent rereads and still find new things. Every time I go through all the things that he says in parcel tongue and all the things he doesn't. Um, Cause especially early on, before you know about the, this is the truth, you know, these, the truthy language, all the things that he says in parcel tongue. And then, you know, he, he, he will switch back to not talking parcel tongue, you know, when he was like asking about the killing curse and stuff, he switches back to being a person or whatever so that he can lie about it. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's like your brain's just too taxed to try to like, you know, keep straight, like which things did he say one way versus the other. And what, yeah. You know, like, even beyond like, like trying to, you know, recall it later, just like in the moment, you're like, oh, okay, wait. Like, even And even once we know that like, okay, some things he says, you know, the things he says in parcel tongue are true and things he doesn't aren't necessarily so it's just like too hard to try to like keep track of it in your head and it's especially hard if you don't know that's what you're supposed to be doing so when harry's like so they get i i'm not sure how long they're in here i think he says they walked at least several miles so you can assume an hour or two yeah they're walking through they exit through the chamber of secrets that leads to some you know graveyard workshop but harry the whole time that he's in there this is actually like i really have fun with this part because it's just him Quirrell's not even in the picture. Like, he, I mean, you know, he's in the scene because he's ahead on camera, but he doesn't look at him once. He doesn't, he doesn't acknowledge him. This is all in his head. He's just thinking, fuck, fuck, fuck. Like, okay, yeah. what can I, what can I do? Well, I can't do that. He'll see that coming. Well, I don't have my wand. Well, I don't have my, I don't have my pouch. I don't have my time turner. I can't just run and grab him because he'll fly away because he can fly. Like he's just, he's just sitting yeah. there trying to think, okay, well, yeah, know, how like, can I possibly do this? He's able to work on the assumption like, okay, this is basically my, like anything Quirrell would do, like we're the same person, he's my brain. So I can like go on like, well, shit, would I have thought of that? Well, of course I'd have thought of that. So, okay, abandon that like approach. Yeah. Um, and- but I like, like he uses, and he uses this a few times in these couple chapters, this idea of, uh, okay, imagine that it worked out. How would it have worked out? Like he tries to sort of work back, work backwards from we succeeded uh, and then what would have needed to have happened to have succeeded. I thought it was kind of a cool way to think about it. But then also like what kind of made me curious was like his Ravenclaw, what did it, I think his Ravenclaw side says, like I, I deny the validity of this entire approach. Cause it seemed like, like it was a, at least sort of a new and interesting way to, to, to think about the thing was like, okay, you know, work backward, like go on the assumption of, you know, having succeeded, what would have needed to have happened. And then it even works like, part of the he then puts some like totally valid you know qualifiers to it he's like okay if we're going to imagine any scenario that's useful for us to be imagining right now like don't imagine that we were magically rescued because that's fucking useless you could just sit here and suck your thumb and we'd still be magically rescued like try to imagine the scenario where something we did helped uh this situation and so he keeps like working forward from there i don't i I, you know i can't recall it as like that approach having like actually come up with anything super useful, but like it was kind of an interesting way to like, that helps your, like your brain, like kind of stop second guessing itself. Like, okay. I like the way I kind of put like with myself is like, imagine I was the person I wished I were, what would I do? I like Um, that. Yeah. And I, I use this technique explicitly sometimes when the occasion calls for it. And I also use the one that uh, Quirrell gives to McGonagall earlier where it's like, imagine that everything goes wrong and you look back at this moment and you say, what could I have done differently? And so like, imagine yourself in the future where everything sucked. And this, this is kind of that technique in reverse where it's like, okay, imagine that things worked out. What, what did I do to make it happen? And so when I'm faced with hard situations, I do deliberately invoke this and be like, well, what I didn't do was sit around and hope it worked out. Right. Yeah. 
Because if, yeah, and if it's I did that, like, and it sort of like calms you in a way. You're like, okay, like even if like, even if you don't see like a way out of whatever, you know, you don't see the solution. You're at least like momentarily able to like chill the fuck out and be like, okay, in the situation where everything was cool, how did that work out? Exactly, and I I have situations that now, work uh, like that, so but I don't feel like, like diving into any of them. So I was <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, because it's all going to get like super like personal and weird. Um, right. how, but like, what was it? because he keeps like, and I, it was his, his Ravenclaw. So, Cause he, again, we kind of drop back into this whole, like it's his different houses in his head arguing with each other. Um, and it, it was his Ravenclaw side that was like, I deny the validity of this approach and fuck you. I'm like, not I'm like I protest and I'm abandoning this whole approach. Um, was, it was that like, it wasn't like his, like some other side, it was his Ravenclaw that was like, okay, this is invalid. Yeah. His, ra- his Ravenclaw is Spock. Yeah. And so his his inner Spock says this isn't a valid way to think about things, and so yeah. he's like, "That's fine. I'm going to keep going." Um, he's yeah. in addition That's to his houses. To be as far as like you know, if you're like the person, you know, if you're Yudkowsky writing this book, then like by saying this and like us walking through that, like Yudkowsky is showing that to us as a like you know, this is a good way to try to you know work things out, or you know, it's a it's a useful approach. Uh, while he's also saying, well, but you know, this is a, so Yudkowsky, Yudkowsky is saying this is a useful approach. Ravenclaw, who we mostly see as kind of a drop in for Yudkowsky is saying no. Um, so I think that's a kind of a, that's kind of an interesting little like departure. Yeah. I think what it means is that both Harry and Yudkowsky are bigger than the Ravenclaw component, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. I like that. Yeah. I think that gets lost a lot. You know, and this yeah. ju- just to just to trigger the uh, the audience that this 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 is pointing out that there are circumstances in which it might not be useless to like toss perfect lo- lo- logic out the window and just keep trying, right? You know, and I don't think we've, <laughs> we, I don't think we've called as long as we're triggering people. Uh, but yeah, because I think it happened since the last time we recorded. Everybody, go uh, check the uh, the HPMOR subreddit. Uh, oh, I think yeah. I dropped that in the Discord. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. you like uh, goes in, and, and I'm also uh, by virtue of that reclaiming the phrase "supposed to." Yes, um, now you can because he <laughs> uses the words exactly. People. Yeah, I mean, but I'm like thinking back on that, like the level of I think, like if we like at the end of all of this, we go back to like, okay, what's like the general impressions of the entire book? Like the level that like there's sort of like the book Yudkowsky wrote, and then this there is this weird poisonous internet chat room vibe of like of the way this is like nerds and groups are terrible people. Um, like when sort of a group think applies to something, like it can get like wildly distorted. And so that was kind of like my thing of like, oh no, like, oh, I have been a little bit getting like gaslit this whole time around, you know, how does this seem like these things that seem very sort of intuitively obvious, like, oh, this is like off-putting behavior. Well, of course this was just like a regular dude that wrote this and, you know, this stuff would obviously be to him also off-putting behavior and would be supposed to interpreted as off-putting um but yeah because so the thing that Yukowski said in the, in the suburb was like you weren't supposed to use the phrase he used the magic phrase it's like you weren't supposed to want to be like quarrel um right and the the comebacks then, were like well you made him so compelling and <laughs> I, I think yeah, yeah exactly like yeah and you felt it like that is that weird like charles manson kind of like like the way a psychopath is is appealing like he does have all of those things that are superficially like such a wish fulfillment of like, God, I wish I could be this awesome and nobody would ever question me. And I was so like lacking in self doubt. Um, but that, like, I think that that's the point. And like, I think cool, like this sort of like self-awareness on Yukowski's part is he's writing this, like this is the temptation of feeling like you are this, like 
you know, guardian of humanity, the only, you know, self-conscious human on the planet was that you're going to just like look down your nose at everybody else. And that's what Quirrell is. Um, and that like, and that is like this, and what I really was hoping like this whole book, what it would be, it, it is this kind of like struggling Harry of like trying to like deal with that of like, you know, how do we, you know, apply these ideas, like, you know, examine all these things that are not only like sort of examine your assumptions about the world, but examine your assumptions about yourself and not fall into that temptation of thinking that like, oh, because I am entertaining these concepts, therefore nobody else does. And I'm smarter than the rest of them. And he's like explicitly calling that out. Like, yeah, don't turn into this guy. You could turn into this guy if you, you know, keep getting high in your own supply. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And like, that's why, you know, cause I think, you know, in the context of the story and its fans, like Quirrell is, is too emotionally salient of a figure. So I always sub in Sherlock Holmes or yeah. Dr. House. Like there are parts of them that I would love to be like, but I would not want to be, you know, uh, Greg House, right? Like yeah. he's, he's a miserable person with no friends and no real relationship. Like, it's an unhappy existence. Exactly. So like, I, I don't think you're supposed to watch House and it's supposed to and want to be like House. You, yeah. you, you want to, uh, you, you might emulate like you find parts of his personality attractive. You find parts of his his uh, standing super attractive. Like being that prestigious and that badass is super awesome. And yet, if it comes at the cost of again having no friends, having uh, you know, being miserable all the time, all that stuff, like it's just not worth the trade off. And uh, yeah, I think like from like like from the nerd value system, Quirrell has the things that we value. He's super competent and super smart. And so he, you know, hits all those things that, cause you know, our total straw man conception of what quote normal people like is, you know, smart, rich, and good looking. Um, but Quirrell is basically the nerd version of that. He's like of the things that are valued in nerd world, Quirrell is the smart, rich, and good looking. And secretly um, good at martial arts and yeah, all this like stuff. He's not, yeah. like, he's <laughs> he's just, you know, anything he sets his mind to, he can do because he's just that, you know, Uber, and, but yeah, but it is like, once you put it into that, like frame it that way and then look at it, like, as we've kept talking about, like, you know, if you were admiring Quirrell and looking up to Quirrell and wanting to be like Quirrell, all you're really wanting to be is, you know, smart, attractive, and rich or not, you know, good looking, attractive, rich. Um, they're not things that one would emulate. They're things you wish you were, but they're not like, oh, I want to be like that. Like, like, oh, how do I act like a rich and good looking person? You just kind of are. It's not a thing that you try to like emulate. There's things like, oh, how would you get rich? Like, how would you get people to admire you and therefore act, you know, act this way? And those would be things that you would want to like try to emulate. If there's somebody that people admire, then they act in a certain way that, that people, that causes the people to admire them. And like, okay, that's like a legit, like good way. Let me try to emulate those things. Cause I also would like to be admired the way that this person is admired. So let me do the things that they do. But like the things we like about Quirrell are only on that, like the ends, but not the means. Like I would like to be attractive. Like, well, yeah, sure. We all would be, but like, what do you do to try to be attractive? Well, I mean, you just kind of are, you aren't. I would like to be rich. You can do stuff to be rich. And that's like, and if you see like, oh, there's this rich person I admire and what did they do to, in order to become rich? That actually is legit. Like, oh, they like worked hard or they studied, like whatever they did. And you try oh, to- Oh, they inherited $460 million. Well, exactly. that's like, like, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, just like Donald Trump, I want to also have been born to rich people. And I'm just going to try to be like that. And so Coral is all of, but only in nerd terms, but he is all of those- things and that that's the 
thing I keep going back to, we don't ever get to see Quirrell having made choices about the actions he's going to take that caused him to be that way. And I think that's totally on purpose that Quirrell's just kind of this abstract representation of psychopathic, completely unempathetic evil, um, which I think totally worked. Like he should, he should be that like, um, like something you said before, like you seeing him as a broken person, broken in the sense of like, yeah, completely not working, not like, oh, a person who's making a bad choice, but a person like not capable of making the right choice. But, um, and, and I don't even know if you and you and I disagree on this, but like the only problem I had with that term broken was that like, I don't ever see Quirrell as ever having been not broken. Like he was just born that way or what we don't even get to see like, oh, what was he born like? Like there is no backstory, and is in terms of like what he serves in the story, he's just this. He he's the completely abstract concept of inhuman evil, and there is no like, oh, he could have been this nice person if we wanted to. Like maybe that was true, but we're never shown that. And so, and that totally like that that that's helpful to the story to actually have him just be this kind of pure, kind of the same way I've talked about like that the phoenix is being this like kind of pure concept of life versus death. Like Quirrell's just the pure concept of inhumanity. Um, and so he only has those very shallow, he has the end goals that one would want. He has these things that, that one wants to emulate. Like, Oh, I wish I were that competent. I wish I were that smart. I wish I were the most powerful wizard on the, on the face of the planet, but we don't get to see any description of behavior or, or motives of, okay, this is how I would want to act in order to get there. We we can kind of conspicuously only see the end result and nothing about how we arrive there. Yeah, and I mean, I, that's partly just by fact of him not being the protagonist, that we don't get a lot of his point of view. But I think you're right, like, you know, that that's intentional. We got plenty of Hermione-centric chapter, you know, Hermione yeah. point of view chapters. Yeah. We got some Draco ones. We got, like, a few paragraphs of Quirrell once. And, like, you know, one thing that he does do in that chapter, if I'm trying to think of examples of him being smart, is like he senses that his, you know, proto Voldemort clone, Harry, is in danger from the troll. And so rather than, you know, fly around Hogwarts to try and get there, he's just like going to rip his way through the castle and get there. And he does do that. So, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, when he has a goal, he doesn't fuck around. He gets straight to the point. But that's not really the, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah. Point is, is that it, yeah, it was, and, it was yeah. fun and, va- and, and uh, validating to see Yudkowsky just jump in there because it wasn't even you, obviously, commenting in the subreddit. It was just other people because we were having the discussion. Do, do you want to be like Quirrell? And he just he just jumps in in, in all italics and he says, "You are not supposed to want to be like Quirrell," <laughs> which is fun. Yeah, because and you can totally see how that gets, and you can see all the ways you know. And they, I mean, they work on me too. Like I would love to be that, just like always right and super good at anything I do. Like we could all get that, but yeah, like what kind of gets lost in that. And I, it does take sort of a level of kind of group think mind fuckery to, to try to start to justify that and like overlook the, like the hollowness of it. Cause there's like nothing backing it up. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you try like work backwards and like justifying everything he says, but like, there's nothing, there's no like substance to trying to, to justify how he is. I mean, I, yes, I, I agree with parts of that. I think that it doesn't necessarily take some kind of toxic group thing to get there. Like I could imagine a fan watching, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, Sherlock and saying, you know what? I would trade relationships to be that cool. Like I can imagine an, a sane person doing that. Like, 
it, it doesn't necessarily have in isolation. It doesn't have to be, you know, on an internet forum. Well, yeah, and so that's like, the difference between like the temptation of it, which is totally that, like a, both I get and is very definitely like supposed to be there. The like this is the attractiveness. This is why you would like want to act that way. But then it's that extra jump of then trying to kind of justify every little thing he does or says to kind of like work backwards towards the and therefore one would want to act that way. Um, like it takes an extra nudge to. Yeah, no, I, I hear you there for sure. But we've got some more chapter to cover. And I'm going to just just rip us back on course here that, uh, I mean, I that's not me like shutting down the conversation. It's awesome and I love it. But we're closing in on two and a half hours and I want to try and see if we can get this done in three. So. Finally. Um, I know, getting you guys are getting a long episode. You guys short. all deserved. Um, so through all of his deliberate, Harry's deliberations, like while they're walking through the tunnel of like, well, I can't do nothing because then I might as well not think about you know, plans or whatever. The one thing he does kind of settle on is like, maybe there's an asymmetry in the magical resonance. And that's why when I was barely magical as a baby, I got a scar and he got blown up. And that's why in Azkaban, I got a headache and he got knocked out for five hours. Um, you know, like that, this is actually a plausible thing. Um, so then he's like, all right, well, what can I do with that? Well, I can't run up and grab him cause he'll fly away. Cause he's got broomstick bones, which is fucking awesome. Uh, <laughs> So like, and okay, we cover well, that later about like, like when he switches bodies, like we cover the, like, Oh, then his broomstick bones would be gone. So what he like puts on like a broomstick exoskeleton or something. I think he's got straps. Yeah. Straps with broomstick, yeah. which I mean, and then again, like this, <laughs> this is kind of to do, you know, get some broomstick bones, <laughs> to do broomstick bones. <laughs> but like, what's fun about that too, when he puts them on is like, he, flies around a little bit and, you know, evens it out and gets, you know, he practices for a second so that when, uh, you know, he wants to fly, it's not uncomfortable for him. I just think that's hilarious and awesome. I don't know anything else for that. It's like stuff I totally read. It's like, okay, plot lawyers satiated. No, no, it's not even even plot lawyers. I think it's just fun. Like, I mean, then again, too, I wonder, it wouldn't have been that hard. I mean, if we're going to bring, I just now I'm thinking about it, you know, if I was arguing, uh, why didn't he just broomstick enchant the bones when they're sitting on the altar? Maybe there's some magic that says you can't broomstick enchant your own bones, but you can broomstick enchant the bones of a corpse sitting on the pedestal, right? So while he was wearing his quarrel meat suit, he could have, he could have, I guess, I guess we never broomstick got enchanted his own bones. I guess we never got specific about what's involved with the broomstick like spell. Maybe like, you know, you have to go out and get some like straw or something. You need to get like the, the broomstick of a witch that's been living alone in her own cottage for a year or something. Maybe it's a sacrificial ritual and you have to sacrifice the gravitational fall of like an actual piece of wood. I didn't have any handy. So now forever that, that piece of wood won't fall anymore or it won't fly or you can't make it fly or something, right? Something's messed up with its velocity. Anyway, so um, <laughs> they're like, okay, well, uh, you know, um, what was the other one? Oh yeah. He's like, well, maybe, ventured Hufflepuff, maybe the Dark Lord's whole Horcrux system would short out via the resonance if we grabbed him and held him, sacrificing our own life to destroy him forever. Sounds very Hufflepuffy. Bull hockey, said Ravenclaw. But I guess it doesn't hurt to engage in some pleasant fantasy before we die, no matter how stupid. <laughs> I know, it's, it's almost like, so his, like, his inner houses are sort of like thrashing around and completely fa- failing him because he's like, this is not the time to shut down, but like they don't give him anything useful at all. I like how behind all the voices, I meant to mention this earlier, there's the last voice is what it keeps being called. And mm. it's not, it's not one of the houses. It's doesn't even, you know, it's more like his core self. It's like, we need mm. to keep trying. There's no giving up. 
Yeah. Um, this is this is more central than any of the you know personalities I'm imagining. This is you know the the deep important one. Yeah, um, I like it. Did a really like this whole scene does a really good job of kind of ca- like capturing the vibe of all is lost and there's the, like just the hopelessness of it, and where we're stuck in like the hyper power of Quirrell. Like he's coming to his full self and like, you know, we are now in the end times and all is lost. Like you yeah, this, fucked. this totally nails the, the all is lost moment. Yeah. And, and I think we do get a, like a, uh, I didn't pull the, pull it as a quote, but there was like one sentence, like a, it's like kind of single standalone italicized sentence of, I think it's like, Oh, I don't know how things are supposed to turn out at this point. We're like, Harry sees no way out. He's like, Oh, we are just fucked. Which is like a cool, but it's like this really great, or like we are totally in this, like, you know, start of act five moment of the story of like, okay, this is the dark before the dawn, except we don't see the dawn. Like, oh, this, like, things couldn't possibly be worse at this moment. Yeah, this is the, we're totally fucked. Yeah. Um, I also just like this too. The, like, his, his Ravenclaw side is sarcastic as hell. And, uh, Hufflepuff's going on about like, well, you know, maybe the the Horcrux system has this whole flaw in it. You know, he didn't think to test him or something. And Ravenclaw's like, so what? His fear of death is his fatal weakness? Yeah, no. I'm thinking someone with over 100 Horcruxes probably built in a few failsafe mechanisms. <laughs> <laughs> and so then there's also this awesome bit that kind of brings home the all is lost moment where he says the part that was numb with grief and guilt took this opportunity to uh, to observe. Speaking of obliviousness. That after the events at Hogwarts had turned serious, he really, 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 really should have reconsidered the decision made on first Thursday at the behest of Professor McGonagall to not tell Dumbledore about the sense of doom yeah. that Harry got around Professor Quirrell. And then it's, it's all its own paragraphs. It's like Dumbledore would have realized. Dumbledore would have realized instantly. The wise old wizard with a true phoenix on his shoulder would have known. And Harry hadn't trusted him because he had made a decision the first week of school and hadn't thought to promote that question deliberate. Uh, to d- deliberate del- to deliberation after he made the decision just early on in the first week, and so what's fun yeah, is like I, I also I like, don't I really. Like that. Go ahead. I, I, I was going to say I don't know if anyone has an eidetic memory of everything we've said on the show, but I don't know if at any point you ever said, you know, now seems like the time for him to tell Dumbledore about the sense of doom, like it. <laughs> exactly. it because I mean that 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 came up, you know, Azkaban, Hermione being killed. Like at some point, it's like you know what? Maybe it's time to like start telling Dumbledore stuff. Like it, like that never came up. I don't think uh, consciously in my mind either. So like it's fun to have Harry kick himself the same way that we would have if we're in his shoes. Um, yeah, I like to like this is sort of like a moment of like we had a lot of these, but like another moment of Harry sort of like this is a humility moment, uh, which I think I uh, like again like that this is kind of sort of a major theme of, of the story is this like Harry is in this moment realizing if I had sort of like surrendered to knowing I have recognized Dumbledore as a person who is trustworthy. If I had then trusted that trust and just told him all the things and uh, that now this person who I know is looking out for the best, you know, for my good and just for good in general, like I could have benefited from his goodwill if I had trusted him enough to, to tell him everything that he needed to know. It was, and it, and it's sort of like, I think in terms of the kind of the, the, the things we look at in, in terms of like interpersonal interactions in the story, it was be, it's this sort of like surrendering to, you know, I don't know what's going on, but, but I do trust that, Dumbledore would have the best of intentions for me. And so if I 
stop relying on myself as the best judge of what ought, ought to happen and just know that because this person has a good will towards me and to anybody I care about, that if I give them enough ammo to do what they need to do, they will do the right thing in spite of whether I know or believe what the right thing would be to do. Like, like, so Harry's recognizing that as a missed opportunity. Like Dumbledore is a person who would have helped me here if I had just merely enabled him to do so. And I didn't because I chose not to trust him being smart enough to do the right thing. Harry finally drinks the Kool-Aid of trusting authority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like it's not even so much. And I get the, and that's, that is how often it gets sort of like framed is that like, Oh, just trust authority for the sake of authority. It's not even so much like authority. It's just like, I, and I guess sort of we, we can kind of equate not me with authority. It's more just like, Oh, like it's, it's the, and it is that sense of like vulnerability and like giving up of control of that. Like, like I don't know what to do. And maybe even this person is going to do a thing that in that moment I think is not the right thing to do, but just sort of like trusting, like, like I've recognized this as a person of goodwill who has the best, you know, intentions towards me and others. Like I'm going to kind of like give it up and even let them do things like empower them to do things that I wouldn't in that like immediate focus approve of with the sort of scary vulnerability of, you know, I guess it'll work out. And I'm hoping that that person is going to look out for what I need out of it. Um, and that, like, and now Harry seeing the, like, you know, I was mistaken in these situations. And if I had given Dumbledore enough information to act on it, he would have helped me out of the situation, but I didn't. And so he can't, and he didn't. And now, and now we're here. Right. And I mean, he does say that, you know, in his own defense that like there was a there was a period of time where it seemed like Dumbledore might be the bad guy and Quirrell seemed like the heroic opposition. How reasonable that is, is up for debate. But like, you know, there was a while where, you know, you and I were tossing or at least I was tossing around the idea very seriously when I was reading this that, you know, Dumbledore, you know, uh, you know, he killed Narcissa Malfoy. He yeah, um, that he was some evil fuck. Yeah. Which, which is a totally awesome idea. Right. And so, you yeah. know, Harry had the same kind of thought where he's like, okay, well, you know, uh, maybe Dumbledore is not the right guy. And plus, obviously, now he understands why he had this sense of affinity for Quirrell. Um, so, you know, all that, you know, comes into play here. But, um, yeah, at some point, he's like, oh, yeah, I, I did consciously realize later that Dumbledore was a good guy. And even then, I didn't think to give him all the information that he could have used to save the day. Like, if this had been able to work out where he and Harry got to plan out, hey, I'm pretty sure we know who Voldemort is. I think he's the defense professor. This all, this all would have played out differently, right? Yeah. Instead, Dumbledore, for good reasons or bad reasons, was blindsided by you know Voldemort being the professor that was hanging out in Hogwarts all this time. But if he had known, and they were able to like plan the attack rather than just have plan a generic attack, and then too, that, I mean, that would have been information for Dumbledore to have. Like, oh wait, you're saying that Voldemort isn't just this puppy kicking, you know, orphan murdering asshole. He's this conniving sadistic intelligent motherfucker no way okay well now that i've got time to process that i can plan accordingly that would have been awesome yeah alas yeah and, and it totally like it works as far like it fits in like it, for me the read of like the like this sounds like english class the theme of the story but that like this works as far as my understanding of of how yudkowsky is communicating the idea of rationality is that that idea of 
Like you're not in control. Surrender yourself to whatever the truth is. Put yourself in a position to be exposed to it. Um, and, and it may not work out how your preconceptions see, but as long as you like put yourself in the position to where whatever the truth is, you're going to be most influenced by it will land you in the right spot. And I think like that's like Harry had chosen this like concealing position of, oh, let me hide the truth from people. And then he sort of like, uh, you know, unbeneficially concealed himself from the help of Dumbledore, but that like by sort of like trying to manipulate the story, he kind of fucked himself. Um, and that it's, it, yeah, it just sort of works as like, like if, because trying to control the outcome just means that the outcome is going to come out how the way you thought it would be in the first place, as opposed to just letting the outcome be what the outcome is. Like, that's the part that feels like sort of like rationalist about it is that like, let the truth be the truth because the truth is going to be the truth regardless of your opinion about it. And the more open you stay to it, um, the better position you'll be in to adapt to it rather well, than sorry. trying to like force something. So, yeah, I think, you know, yeah. there, there, there's probably going to be room for quibbling about how directly that applies to Harry's particular circumstances, et cetera. But that, that general, uh, um, summation there of, or summarization summary of, uh, like, yes, the, that is the, that is one of the virtues of rationality is to be flexible and open to the truth and the capacity to, uh, again, not, not stick with whatever you think, because you might be wrong. The goal is to be, dare I say it, less wrong overall. And so uh, that's the name of the show. And, I think, and that's sort of like the, that's the like that kind of main conflict between Harry and Quirrell is like Harry needs to, to like turn that eye on himself. And I think that's like the most, like that's the big kind of takeaway is like the value of this is not like, oh, let me try to like dispassionately evaluate the opinions of other people. It's, you know, let me allow the the opinions i arrive at to remain as fluid as possible to like the reality that's going on around me and so like that's the like that's the the only way harry kind of extracts himself from his whole am i quirrell or am i me is because he is like on like that in the most fundamental level that no real person will ever have to deal with because he is another person. The only, the only way that Harry has out of it is to just say, let me let reality tell me what things ought to be. Uh, And that's how, and that's how like, and what Dumbledore knew was going to happen was like the way that Voldemort turns into a good Voldemort is when, you know, the Harry is able that, that Harry Voldemort just says, let me, you know, whatever, wherever I start, let, just let me sort of like reality guide where I ought to go. And that like that leads you to towards being a good person. Um, like, and I think like that's sort of like the, like the big thing is like, no matter how, like the, oh, I am Voldemort is like, if you start at the even worst possible position, which is I am pure evil and Voldemort, um, that if you like leave yourself open to, but let reality guide where I ought to go, that even in that situation, you'll end up in, a, in to be the kind of person that wants to save Hermione Granger. That's awesome. And you said another thing in there too, about turning that on yourself. Yeah. Like it's, it's, and that, that's the, that's the difference between being a sophisticated arguer and, or an asshole, which is being able to point out how dumb everyone else is. But the moment that you can point out how dumb you are, and your own failures, only then can you acknowledge like, oh yeah, those are the weaknesses I have too. Let me work on them. 
that is, and that really is like the level the only that, most, that's like the only important part to it because like yes. you can't do anything about anybody else's opinion about anything. Absolutely. No, that that's awesome. All right. We have some chapter to get through. So <laughs> meanwhile, plot advanced. They yeah, so that that <laughs> well that, that was just all Harry walking down that corridor for those couple of hours or whatever. And so then they emerge in the graveyard. And it's got this, you know, all the ambiance you want out of this horrible resurrection so is this, graveyard. So is this the same graveyard that we were in before? Is this, well, I guess, is that the Godric's Hollow? Are we in that graveyard where the body of, we are, I guess, in the, where the body of Voldemort, except we didn't know where Voldemort was. Uh, it's not are clear we in to me. the LSD graveyard, graveyard where uh, Moody and Snape were? No, I don't think so. Um, because that was where uh, Voldemort's family was. Like this, this is somewhere that is within walking distance between Hogwarts and Hogsmeade. So, yeah, so this is not- this is somewhere in the neighborhood of Hogwarts. Um, so this is some other place. I'm not sure. Like I, I don't know. Like so, when he makes his body, I don't. I, I didn't actually pick up whether or not it was you know through some ritual that he makes the body, or if he just makes one out of Transfiguration that makes I it real. I think the the impression I got was that he had so he did say like oh I put this here so that it would be convenient between Hogsmeade and Hogwarts but that also because he sort of says well like wisely hidden or something is his magic phrase but that like some blood shows up so my understanding was that like that was um, that was blood of the original body of the original Tom Riddle such Voldemort that he had kept hidden away for this ritual once he was powerful enough to do anything meaningful with it like like that so this this what we aren't in just some like random location where he had set up his cool workshop but that he had hidden his previous body's blood here to be used as part of that as part of the ritual that he was going to do yeah no that makes sense i think that's probably right so we get there and he says all right so here we go i've got here's my plan i'm going to make myself i'm going to remake myself first of course and then he says that in parcel tongue, it'll be easier to revive girl child with my true body, which is fun to remember that like, remember when he was fighting that aura in Azkaban, he was polyjuiced and you're weaker in polyjuice than you are in your real body. And he was polyjuicing mm-hmm. from a body that he was possessing. So he was like two levels removed from his true power and he was still owning this dude. Oh, yes. um, and so he's like, yeah, I need to be at full strength to do this properly. So I'm going to make myself first. And, uh, um, he, he assures him that now, uh, yeah, of course, you know, a resurrection ritual is going to be dark, but she will not be harmed or made ugly by it. She shall still look like herself. Her mind shall be her own and nor shall I or mine harm her after. And he's saying all this in parcel tongue. And he, Harry's like, look, I'm really confused. Can you tell me what, why are you resurrecting her? And again, in parcel tongue, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. He says to restore to you girl, child, friends, counsel and restraint to make sure she is part of the world for you to care about. That boy is truly the greater part of the reason I am doing this deed. Yeah, no, I put a I put a big fat pin in all of this along with uh, because he at the end of this, he goes to a whole lot of trouble to buff the shit out of her and make sure basically that she's going to live forever. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> this sticks out a huge question mark as so, yeah, it seems like, you no, know, he's a he definitely. So I guess I think there's more to it. So yes, he wants her around to help Harry, but 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 it's basically yet yeah, because he says it in parcel tongue, like basically to like help you remain a good person. Um, and so, but yeah, but like in my head, like this got filed together along with all of the stuff he's about to do about like buffing her with a unicorn and a troll, and he's going to try to make a horcrux out of her. Like, um, so it sticks out as a very big unanswered question of 
he's investing a lot of effort into making sure Hermione's okay. And we don't know why. Um, and so, and he did say, and I guess I do accept as like being true that like, that he wants her around because, because he likes the influence that she has on Harry, but it seems like he's going to so much extra effort that that sticks out as a, okay, there's more to this going on. That's And actually through all these chapters, that's probably my big, like, um, like, okay, let's keep an eye out for what's going on with this is, uh, what, what does Quirrell think is going on? What, what does Quirrell mean to Hermione or what does Hermione mean to Quirrell? Um, cause I mean, yeah. And it, like, it totally fucks him over at the, at the end of this and we're left in a cliffhanger about it. But, um, but yeah, he's, he spends an awful, especially now that we can be thoroughly confident in the total sociopathy of Quirrell slash Voldemort, um, that what self-serving, uh, and does kind of making, Hermione immortal um, give him because like because I guess because to the to the end that that Quirrell thinks that he's doing he's making Hermione more bulletproof literally more bulletproof than Harry like he's being more protective of the mortality of Hermione than he is even of Harry whom he regards as just another Voldemort another Tom Riddle so yeah it totally sticks out Maybe again, it didn't quite, it, not fairly at, at this moment. It was just like, oh, I guess he didn't, you know, I guess he wasn't just talking shit when, when he was saying like, oh yeah, I like, you know, I want her to, to help you. Like, oh, that is important. And then it becomes like, it builds on, on like, the amount that he wants to buff her, like after the fact, like builds on this, like, oh, what's going on here? Like this, he's like, he's not fucking around with this and, and he means it, but yeah, I guess like not a sense of what are his true motivations behind it. It feels like the, like, oh, I want her to be a good influence on you is only a portion of the story. Yeah. I mean, according to his parcel mouth revelation, it's at least 51%. He says it's the greater part. I mean, we we actually, he's hmm, trying to think of how much to get into here. I think we have all the information we need to know exactly why he's doing this. Um, but Harry doesn't. Uh, so Harry's confused, but we wouldn't be if we took notes through everything. Um, but... We'll, uh, we'll put a pin in it and just keep in mind that, or I guess, you know, it's hard to forget like, all right, what the fuck it is at some yeah. point, like while, while he's resurrecting yeah, that's her. True, but it's only a part of the story is what it yeah. is where my brain is on that. And what's funny is while he's resurrecting her and giving her all the, bu- you know, the buffs and stuff that you were talking about, Harry's like in his head, he's like, I'm very confused. Is this Voldemort practicing being nice? Yeah. Like, is this what he's talking about when? You know, hey, you know, I thought about something later this day that I could do that would actually be nice. Like, is this what the he- is this what he was talking about? Like, he's he's practicing. What the hell? Yeah. Um, so, in my head, I'm like, no, that's not it. <laughs> there's some, some it's, there's some other reason. There's got to be more to it than that, right? Yeah. Um, or not even like not even more to it. Like, that's not even at all the reason. He's got some sort of selfish motivation for it. I mean, if I if I'm being uh, just full quarrel about it, maybe he hasn't tried the combination of. Let's let's shove a unicorn and a troll inside somebody with a philosopher's stone and see if they die or see how they do. So this could this could be him experimenting, right? But, I guess yeah, but it probably wouldn't because I guess he's at least come to the to the practical conclusion that keeping Hermione alive is necessary towards you know keeping Harry around for whatever needs I have for him. Because I guess like apparently like he hasn't he does have like longer term intentions for keeping Harry around and that keeping Hermione around 
serves that. So it's not, so he wouldn't like risk it. If it was like, Oh, you know, she might die here. Let me see what happens. Like, I think he, yeah. If he was going to use a guinea pig, he'd use something to help her. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since like now he's like, now he's latched onto the idea of like, Oh, I could like test things out in advance. I should start doing that more. (laughs) All right. So he, he brings back his own body with that cool, you know, graveyard chanting, creepy stuff, which is, again, plug the audiobook. Sure is a reference to... Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's a reference to something, too. But. Reference to something? Yeah. Yeah, and when he, like, he, like, stands up, especially, like, it it helps kind of reinforce the, like, level of sociopathy in him. But, like, now we, like, this body that we've associated, like, Harry's focus has been on this person that has inhabited this body this whole time, just, like, collapses and falls to the ground, and now the, the real Voldemort is you know, rising up from the altar, but like the, uh, the physical description of him, I, I actually went back and Googled cause it always struck me as off. Like the, the movie depiction of the physical appearance of Voldemort with like that snake nose, um, scene brought in, but I went back and looked like, no, like that whole snake nose thing is like, OG Voldemort. Um, but that, yeah, like when he like sits up from the altar in a very sort of Frankenstein feeling scene, um, that it's very sort of menacing and I guess he's sort of like physically larger. He's sort of like described as both like taller and sort of like lean muscular. It's just sort of very like physically, both like physically threatening and off putting. Like it's like not at all appealing. Um, it did make me, th- I guess it's sort of like a good like description of, or like a demonstration of, of Voldemort's indifference to the physical world. But because he's so creepy looking, um, like, and, and it would be within his very significant amount of power to make himself not creepy looking. Like maybe he just does not give a shit. Or I guess it could be also that he likes the effect that has on people, but that it's not at all a factor for him that like being, you know, aesthetically pleasing to other people that might look at you is important is just not at all a factor for him. Not at all a factor, it seems like. I mean, he's got, yeah. you know, his hands look like pale half spiders. He's yeah. he, he's described as too tall. He's got too many teeth and his smile. And he's yeah. like, I guess the, it's the still nose like, is all nose, weird. Yeah, the nose, like the nose, like what do we like malfunctioned or something. Red eyes um, with pupils like slits like a cat's. And yeah. so like, he's clearly not trying to get laid in this body, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. that's the thing is he could have made himself look like Chris Evans or Chris Hemsworth or Chris Pine or Chris Pratt or insert Chris. Chris. Um, but no, he, he people named Chris. He comes he comes back looking like this. And you're right. It's like, okay, yeah, looking being attractive isn't fun to him at all. He wants to look scary. And yeah. so Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, if you said I guess I had in the back of my head that like, oh, you know, he didn't have the power to transform himself into anything he wants and make it permanent. So because I think there was always an implication that especially the whole nose thing that like him starting to look more snaky was kind of like a, like he had made a choice to like, Oh, like I got some sort of physical, like I got some sort of long-term benefit from not having this a way. nose. <laughs> yeah, from, yeah. Like I sacrificed my nose and therefore it gave me more power to blah, blah, blah. But, um, but I guess like, like what I imagined in the back of my head was because these, the, the Stone was a new thing for him. That was me conspicuously not calling it the resurrection stone because I can't keep track of that shit. Um, the latest rock 
Um, he's using like, the because, sorcerer, he's using the philosopher's stone to resurrect himself, not stone, the resurrection right. stone to resurrect himself. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so too many rocks. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that he so he didn't have that before. So the body he was in would have been whatever compromise he decided was okay for. Okay, I'm at this level of whatever powerful, and so for the fact that I look more like a snaky ray fine is totally okay. Um, but that I get, so I was imagining that like, like he had put it on his to-do list was, okay, now that I can permanently transfigure myself into something cool, I'm going to make myself look a little more Brad Pitt. Right. Uh, to do, <laughs> um, or, yeah, or actual Ray Fine, who was also a not unattractive. <laughs> there's, there's the moment here too, when, uh, so he gets up and then, Quirinus Quirrell says, free, oh, free. And then he just <laughs> he just thoughtlessly stuns him. And he's like, all right, cool. I'm going to leave that guy okay. for later. And- yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, because that, that made me, which like is kind of a, like another cool like way to kind of imagine the inhumanity of Quirrell, like, oh, the, or of the, of Voldemort Quirrell, that there's been this actual Quirinus Quirrell who's been living in some sort of like hellish, you know, unable to command his own body thing this whole time. It's like, ah, oh, yes, I'm finally free. And like, yeah, shut the fuck up. Yeah. It's um, all kinds of messed up. Like, yeah, years and years of, of hellishness that we're just going to ignore. Yep. And so then he says, frightened child. Good. Place the girl on the altar. And so it's like, it's time for me to revive her. And so then it's, uh, there's this back and forth about how you don't need your wands to undo transfiguration. Cause you've been holding it without it. And so he's like trying to, barter for his wand back and he's yeah. like yeah no fuck that and so he uh you know it apparently and it's described and there's this awesomely disgusting sound in the audiobook of like the body kind of like like churning back into a body shape yeah um and it's not you know this nice pop of like great now she's a person again and so then now the, yeah, they did good, like, the like i like the like liked is the wrong word but like the description of like oh and she's missing her limbs and and how we, in a minute, get sort of like Harry's discomfort with with her nakedness, like just kind of like the physicality of the whole thing, like helps kind of communicate sort of the disgust of the whole situation. Or in like not only, what sort of helps thematically with the whole story of like how distasteful death is in general, but also like how gross the situation her situation like the death of Hermione and the the you know, destruction of her body and, and the pain of like, like we get, we get a very solid, thorough description of, you know, what it's like that, you know, your best friend was killed and eaten by a troll. Yeah. And then kind of like the, and then just sort of the reality of like, Oh, I'm an 11 year old kid. And this is my 12 year old best friend who is a naked girl sitting, a naked dead body, you know, a corpse on, on a, on a slab. Um, and by the, you missing know, her you legs, make, yeah. yeah, missing her legs. Like, could you make like, and then even after like Quirrell restores the legs and stuff is like, you know, this is creepy and weird that there's this like dead naked girl sitting in front of me. Cause so could you put a robe on her at least? And Quirrell's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, but yeah, it sort of like, like made all of that stuff feel a lot more sort of like graphically real and gross in a way that like, like it's gross, but it like works as far as storytelling that like, oh, you know what, this really kind of sucks. And like, you know, what happened to Hermione is disgusting and gross. Totally. I, uh, yeah. Um, it, it paints that really well. Yeah. So he, he goes through all the work. He, he gives her her legs back and then, uh, 
he just says, there's an obstacle. And Harry is like, of course yeah. there is. <laughs> of course. And so is. he's like, yep, Fucker. I've, I've, I've restored her body. Her substance is repaired, but not magic or life. This is the body of a dead muggle. Um, you know, I, I think I can restart her with an electric shock. I know that much of muggle medicine, which is, you know, he's seen a TV show, I guess. She's um, not a muggle though. Like as if we're going with the whole, like, you know, genetic bloody blah, like she's born, not a muggle. Yeah, that's confusing. I guess you're right. The genetic thing uh, would seem to imply that she has like just this yeah, innate magic that's with been. her. Yeah. But maybe there's some sort of, you know, again, insert magic. Maybe there's some sort of magical spark that needs to be there in conjunction yeah. with the genes. Yeah, that's not, I don't know. That's yeah, a good question. But um, it, you know what it does do is it sets up. Overlook that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but yeah. How come? Magic, I guess? I don't know. Uh, using magic to explain logical inconsistencies is tight. What it does do is set up this beautiful moment where he gets to use the Patronus yeah. charms. So, yeah, and then we get to sort of see like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool on multiple levels because it's like Harry using his sort of very core self to like save his best friend. Um, only, not only in a like, oh, this thing that's uniquely Harry, which is the human Patronus charm, the the Expecto Patronum that no other wizard has ever known for lack of a scientific look at things, but also, and I think I guess it doesn't say it, but like. But it's it seems like Harry knows going into that, like Harry's about to give up a piece of himself in order to save his best friend. And it, it's not even ever uh, – he, d- he doesn't even have to like wonder to himself about whether he wants to do that. Right. Um, yeah, it's nice it, and so like, Yeah. And I like, because that whole like, oh, human expecto patronum thing is the kind of uniquely Harry thing. Like that is the thing that Harry brought to wizardom is, you know, by the way, you guys have completely misunderstood what, you know, science and death means. Um, that like Harry brings up, like, it's like, oh, and by the way, this thing that you thought was just this way to fight off Dementors can also, by the way, bring the dead back to life. Um, and so it does, like, so it, like that circumvents the issue that Quirrell had run into around, like, oh, she's still going to be a muggle if I bring her back. Like, and it does like so at that moment, like the only thing Quirrell did, which then seemed like a you didn't need a full blown Voldemort slash Quirrell to do this, was like Quirrell having restored her body back to a you know viable this this corpse is capable of living. It's all good now. Um, that with just Harry's new and improved Expecto Patronum you can give life back to a dead corpse as long as, you know, all the organs are working. Um, so it was sort of like kind of elevating the, like this cool new way that, that, that like Harry, you know, mentalized what death means uh, as now, you know, combine that with, with the quote regular magic of an expecto Patronum means that like this thing is now capable of bringing the dead back to life. It was sort of like, you know, hey, you know, this thing that we thought was a big deal in the beginning is it really is a really big fucking deal. You know, that's actually so, yeah. so there, there's a couple things with that one. It seems like the Patronus 2.0 is just like an embodiment of life itself. But yeah. you're right. It didn't actually occur to me that like, yeah, it works on an otherwise dead person that is or a, a person that's healthy, but otherwise, you know, is is dead, but otherwise healthy. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because so, it, yeah, it, it's sort of like reduced like Quirrell as impressive we as we have been with Quirrell's power, it kind of said that like, okay, the only thing Quirrell brought to the party at this point was just to kind of like restoring the physical problems with the, 
you know, with the body, like if we're going to put this in your, your weird ass cryogenics terms, like, <laughs> like this body's completely like capable of living as long as you just can like throw life back into it. And that the, the expector patronum is capable of doing that, you know, the impossibly magic part of that, um, that you don't need some kind of dark ritual or, you don't, you know, you don't have to be a, you know, you don't have to be a quarrel like yeah. expecto patronum is able to bring the whole. Yeah. The, the next obvious thought that we don't get to see tested, uh, at least at this point in the book, which is fun to think about is like, would this work on any dead body? Like it if, sounds if, like it. It's, it seems somebody, like that's how it's being. Cause like shown. all, all the Avada Kedavra does is kill you. It doesn't explode your heart. It doesn't, you know, turn your brain into, into jello. It like, it just kills you. So like, Hey, we've got a perfectly healthy dead person here. Can you use the Patronus charm to resurrect them? I wonder if that would work. It seems like it might. Yeah. Especially, yeah. Especially because it's, it seems like expect Patronum and Avada Kedavra have been sort of portrayed as being kind of the opposite ends of the same thing. So yeah, it seems like, Oh, it would cancel out an Avada Kedavra. Yeah. I wonder, like, I guess the only limiting factor is that it does take a portion of himself. Um, so it's not like he could run around doing this to everybody because he's, he's only got so much whatever mana to sacrifice. Right. So, yeah. uh, you know, I guess he lost, he lost some HP and MP here, uh, resurrecting Hermione. No, no, he says, no, no, no. He lost, he lost constitution. That's a permanent reduction <laughs> from his stats. Yes. Congrats. Yes. I forgot my vernacular there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, it's, it's awesome. And he, he says that because you wish to live, because my best guess is that you would wish to live. He's thinking before that, that obviously she yeah. wouldn't approve of the situation, but all else being equal that he thinks that you would otherwise I want you, I think you would want this. And so with that, he's able to fuel, bring her back. And it says that, uh, that there is a dip, a bite in his uh, magic and his life that he hadn't sacrificed, you know, all of it, not by a long shot, but he lost some forever. And then Hermione Granger was breathing just like she was sleeping. And it wasn't because de- uh, dead people looked like they were asleep. It's because she was yeah. sleeping and nothing was hurting her while she slept. And that part's all awesome. I love it. Yeah. It's moving. It's touching. It's great. And in his mind, he's thinking that was step two. Step one is getting his wand back. So mm-hmm. his, he's got that last voice in his thing, still trying to plan how to win. And he's like, yep, got the wand. Hey, would you fucking co- look at that? We got fucking Hermione back. That's that's a win. Um, Which is sort of like, like, like in my head, it was, it was like, okay, even if whatever else the fuck, that, that isn't like a thing that is a step towards some greater goal. Like, okay, that's a goal accomplished. Like Hermione's alive again, even if the rest of this shit like doesn't work out. Like, okay, done. Like, that one's good. Yep. Looks good to me. And then, uh, I like this too. It's just kind of funny to think about uh, Voldemort's asking, like, oh, so does your magic is, you know, life as well? Well, that's obvious because it was too powerful for magic, whatever. But then he says, I suspect I'll feel quite stupid when I finally comprehend that spell someday in my eternity. I'm going to put, you know, good odds on the fact that Voldemort will never be able to cast the True Patronus spell, right? That's, yeah, probably... Yeah. So he says, someday in my eternity, like, not unless you change who you are, you're not going to figure this shit out. Um, then, uh, so Harry kind of steps back and he hides his wand. And then, uh, this is where we talked about this already a bit, but, uh, he's like, Hey, look, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, you know, shove this troll in her. And now she'll be immune to being damaged. Watch <laughs> this. And he, and he like, and wait, it's sort of like, Harry's sort of like give him permission to like step back and let this, this stuff that Harry might've been ethically, you know, 
questionable about if it was going to be him to choose. He's like, well, you know, I don't got a choice. So it's probably maybe, you know, I was worried about killing unicorns before, but I guess we're going to kill a troll. Troll's not as cute as a unicorn. <laughs> right. You know, but, you know, it's Voldemort doing it. So I'm like, uh, yeah, it's not like I could stop him if I wanted to. to claim. So. so, yeah. I also like how when it describes <laughs> the troll. My friend becomes immortal out of it. Who might argue? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I couldn't get in the way of this if I tried. Might as well let this happen. Um, I like how when it describes the troll being like vanished, it says it turns to dust and then the dust seems to blow away without going anywhere. That's exactly what it looks like when Thanos snaps people out of existence. <laughs> that's, that's totally what I, this was written way before that too. That's totally where my brain went to. It's perfect. So he Thanos snaps, he, he, he infinitely got with snaps the troll into her. And then he does the same thing. Or So then he's like, oh yeah, check this out. And he cuts her and then it heals up immediately. Yeah. Like, How cool is that? Right. Here, watch <laughs> what this. I did going to shove a unicorn in there too and uh it's not clear what the unicorn gives her it says that the power of unicorn's blood like give her like it's sort of like she perpetually has the same ability or not ability so much but like like you sort of then all the time have the ability that you would have gotten if you would you know drank unicorn's blood yeah exactly drink and it's not, but he says it works great with trolls healing, I guess. I'm not sure they seem distinct to me, but that's fine. But yeah, so now she's got the constant buff of unicorn blood as if she was IV dripping it all the time. Um, so he, and, that, and maybe this is a, like, oh, I am not a anti-deathist person by trade, but the thought going through my head was like, okay, this is cool. She's basically immortal now and is going to live forever. Like, have we... Uh, and this has been my thought, like in terms of all this, like, oh, living forever kind of thing. She still has the option to die if she wants to 10,000 years from now. Yes. Because like my concept of hell is like you cannot die regardless of your choice about the thing. Agreed. I think that's that's totally that's fair. Right. And so taking away the choice of somebody to be able to die if they wanted to after a million years of being bored or whatever, like that would that's that's like the worst torture imaginable. That's that's um, that. That's hell. So yeah. Right. So what's fun is that she has that right up until he makes her a horcrux. And so <laughs> um, <laughs> like, well, I guess you st- like even in that situation, you would like it you would could go and fetch your horcrux and destroy it and then eat a bullet. And right. Be okay. Well, or at least <laughs> okay, ju- jump into dead. the sun or have somebody about a cadaver you or some, something. Some shit, yeah. But yeah. Um, but yeah, but the, yeah, I guess somebody who's been horcruxed, you could like, you know, bury their horcrux in the center of a very, very neutral dead star that's never going to go anywhere. And then you just like, put it on sorry. the next pioneer sorry, spacecraft. You can die. Yeah, you can die and then live in the dead space forever. And then, yeah, that's hell. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I I wouldn't choose that fate. Um, so, yeah, they, they use the diary of Roger Bacon, because apparently I think Horcruxes, we get that line that was cool in Dumbledore speak earlier that uh, it either has to be, or then becomes an object of power. And so I guess this was already a cool thing. And so, yeah, let's make this a Horcrux too. Um, yeah. But it wasn't clear. So is it, I, I don't know if it was just sort of like poetically to the story important, but yeah, that part I didn't quite, I guess I was thinking that maybe because it was the diary of Roger Bacon that, that it had other magical-ish things cast on it? Or was it just that it was sort of like poetically nice to make the Horcrux? It definitely already has magic stuff on it because they mentioned when he was giving it to him and he was like throwing it around that like, no, I could toss this into the fireplace and it wouldn't even come out. Yeah, yeah, okay. And that that helps. And that 
increases its value as far as being a Horcrux because then it's undestroyable. Yeah, it's already resistant to yeah. damage. So, yeah, 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 I gotcha. uh, yeah, so he gets the then he gets his pouch back because he's like, oh yeah, I think it's in my pouch. <laughs> yeah, and that's like step two, huh? That was step three. Step one, wand. Step two, Hermione. Step three, pouch. Um, Oh, and then this. Yeah, geez. So uh, he says, yeah, the diary was exactly what I told you it was going to be. A gift meant to seduce you to my side, obviously. And so then he says, now I make this diary into a far more precious gift, a sign of how much wisdom I have learned from you. For I would never want you to be deprived of Hermione Granger's counsel and restraint, not ever while the stars yet live. Avada Kedavra. And then you it's sad because like we never knew quarrel and yet yeah. nobody deserved what he got so he just dies and yeah quarrel's got like a 30 second lifespan in this whole story poor thing um yeah, but it, and it does make you wonder about like okay so that that original actual queerness quarrel like what has life been for him during these last 800 pages like like has he been this you know screaming horrified passenger in the brain of Voldemort or has he been unconscious or because he says like oh free you know at last free or something which sort of kind of implies that he's been aware of his like imprisonment in the head of Voldemort so yeah it kind of like without resolving anything sort of implies these like possible horrors that have been going on the whole time I really just hope he was only vaguely aware of it just for the sake of his I know, own like, suffering. Like, but like he's in a coma or something. So yeah. it's like sort of there, but maybe not. But yeah, I kind of imply like, or, or maybe not. Maybe he's just been like screaming in his head the entire time. Oh, God. Because Voldemort, he doesn't give a shit. Right. So what happens when he tries to make the diary a Horcrux? This uh, fucking, I don't know, bad shit. But we don't know what the hell that was going on. Um, yeah, because so yeah, shit blows up and both... Quirrell and Harry's brain explode. Um, Figuratively. And and I guess it was, uh, was it the moment of casting the Avada Kedavra or was it he tried to do something more right after that? I think it was like all right in that moment. Like he cast Avada Kedavra and then, his, and then their brains explode. No, it was, it was, af- it says that he cast Avada Kedavra, Quirrell's Quirrell's unconscious body does not even jerk in death. And then darkness glowed in the air, anti-light as the trails that Voldemort had made before the Dyer Roger Bacon. It describes the ba- the the thing becoming a Horcrux. Um, oh, okay. And then, or yeah, at least, then, or at least, almost. It's hard. I'm not sure what a Horcrux looks like when it's being made, but it says even a shiver uh, appeared in the air around Hermione Granger's form, um, or even as a shiver. So it it was either almost a Horcrux or finished being one. But then at that point, uh, Harry's head catches on fire figuratively not literally and so does uh voldemort's and voldemort's screaming and then in his voice in his head there's this chance the last voice chance and maybe it sort of maybe runs with the theory that harry had been running with that um that whenever bad shit happens to them because of this that it's worse for voldemort than it is for harry um, because it seems like oh, like oh, it's really fucking bad for for Harry, but like for Quirrell, like Quirrell's completely incapacitated, and Harry is together enough to reach into his fanny pack and sign G U N, which is my last um, bit of like oh, I couldn't follow that shit along. Um, but yeah, so so they're all they're all fucked up. Harry reaches into his fanny pack and. Uh, and ask for a gun, which is like, then that's the other thing we realize. Well, of course, like super paranoid Harry would have already put a gun into his <laughs> fanny pack. When he had the Weasleys um, go off and get him stuff. I'm guessing that was one of the things. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so yeah, my first, my first just immediate read of the thing was, oh, Harry reaches into something, but then wait, what? And oh, I guess he's got the gun. And I think part of that 
confusion too was that we already knew that Quirrell had a gun out. So my my first read was like, oh wait, I guess he picked up the gun, but how did that happen? So I was like super confused by the whole thing. Um, but yeah, so I guess like he reaches into his uh, into his pack and pulls out a gun. And it's sort of like, and he's not super sure about the like wisdom of the move, but he's like, I don't know what the hell else to do. And this seems like an opportune moment. So he, he reaches back, pulls out a gun, walks up to Quirrell and goes all Reservoir Dogs on him. Um, I'm just tight. recently watched again. It's, it's a solid movie. You should watch, everybody should watch it again. It's good. Um, so there's, there's another thing that yeah, I- three rounds in the Quirrell and, and chapter break. Chapter break. All right. So I've got, I've got two things here that jumped out at me on, well, one that jumped out in the reread here, which is that Harry's right hand holds his wand and his left hand goes for the gun, which means that he's shooting left-handed. I'm just, <laughs> I mean, he says okay. that he says that he stepped forward and did what his brief trials had showed was doable, which means that he practiced with the gun at some point. But I just think it's fun that he's practiced enough to be proficient with his left hand. Um, sure. The other thing that's happening here is Voldemort is screaming his, you know, grabbing his head and screaming. He's like, no, no, my great creation severed, severed. I must make a Horcrux. And so then he looks down at Hermione and and starts making the Horcrux gestures. Yeah. Which then I guess, so he's saying I must make a Horcrux, which, which I guess implies that he's now in some sort of vulnerable state where every single Horcrux he's ever made no longer counts. That seems to be what he's saying. Yeah. yeah, That's, that was a, another big question mark. I, I planned. I was like, well, what does that mean? It seems like his connection to his great yeah. creation is severed. Yeah. So now he's maybe in this like super vulnerable state that he wouldn't have been in before. Uh, the whole, you know, the whole thing feels kind of like discordant and like raises this note of confusion, but you know, there's no time to think like Harry's thinking, I think he says somewhere in there that like, look, you know, killing him would just annoy him, but no, like it might make sense to still temporarily disincarnate Voldemort, take the stone yeah. and Hermione and run. Um, which I mean, yeah. If you got the chance, you know, buy yourself a few hours, get the fuck out of there, right? It's not um, a bad idea. Not a bad idea. And then you pulled out one of my favorite pictures from "It's Always Sunny" with Danny DeVito on the news. And so anyway, <laughs> I started blasting. <laughs> I started blasting. <laughs> That's right, yeah, because totally like the idea of Harry with a gun seems so like out of place. So it's awesome. As does Danny DeVito with not not just Danny DeVito with a gun. Danny DeVito double fisting guns. Yeah, so he's got that already. And um, all right, so now we have the plan for the next chapters. And people who have read this will know why this is confusing to plan out. So we're definitely going to do chapters 112 and 113. The thing is, they're two pretty short chapters, but there's a good reason to break it into 113 for some pause there. I think what might so, I think especially as we are nearing the end, we should we should err on the side of fewer chapters per episode. Yeah, but what I'm thinking is like if that only takes us an hour to talk about, we either get a short episode or we could record those two chapters on Tuesday and then do like say the next chapter or two on Saturday. But I don't know if that's worth it. So um I think we'll just I mean we'll find stuff to talk about for we'll fill an episode. We're gonna do chapters 112 and 113 next week and that'll be it yeah i was trying to think of like some some way to like cram in there to do any subsequent chapters after that but like i don't have uh there's not there's not an easy way to do that so we're gonna let's just do these two 
and then then everyone also gets to wait a week. And, and 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 we should we should be like spending more time on as we're honing in on the end. We should be digging in more. No, yeah, I think we should we should split them up more. All right, that sounds good to me. It's it's going to be a low word count, and if it's a short episode, then it's a short episode, and tough luck, y'all. But that's what we're doing. So we will be back next week for chapters one twelve and one thirteen. Bye, folks. See you soon. I meant to ask, do you have anything else you wanted to add? Like, you know, here's how this all worked out, all that stuff, or we haven't mm. had it for a while. So, and I'm starving. Yeah. Just got to say. <laughs> no. Good. All right. See you back here next week, everybody. Bye.